In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1905 to 1918. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. 1905. Story number one. By the Light of Iron Stars. Written by the Stabby Brit. The age of myth. The void was full of light. Stars burned across the heavens, radiant and wondrous, blasting energy out in all directions. You could power the entire universe for a thousand years over one pictosecond's worth of output of even the smallest shiner. And they beamed all that power out into nothing for a trillion years. What a waste. The people who lived in the light existed not on worlds as ours are, but on planets. Spheres of raw material that orbited the burning stars. They were trapped there, trapped and waiting to die. The shining stars did not burn forever, and in their death throes they would burn up and consume the planets. A thousand races died that way, burned alive by their stars. It was humanity who was the first to escape. It is said that they built ships with great solar sails, tens of thousands of miles across, and rode the light of their star out into the galaxy. They found us all trapped in our little worlds and pulled us aboard. These sailing ships were ill-suited for to their purpose. I made it sound swift, but in reality it took many thousands of years for each ship to reach its destination. Generations lived and died without ever seeing harbor. We questioned the wisdom and the purpose of it. We doubted other races existed, even though we were living aboard alien vessels. Humanity, once again, put their minds to the task. The stars were the answer. The sailing ships caught their light to drive them on and slow them down. But it was a crude and slow affair. Mankind fixed us. They built the focuses, all the power of a star harnessed and directed. Now a ship could be driven up to the speed of a fraction of the time, and so long as there was a focus at the other end, brought to a halt just as rapidly. Now it was the work of a single generation to sail from one race's domain to another. Not ideal, but better. They were not idle, the minds of man. Even a generational flight was too much for them. They began to seek out special stars called black holes. Stars that did not shine. No, not like ours. These were the eaters of energy. Stars that stole the light and heat of their neighbors. Black holes, if the myths are true, could even swallow time itself. They found them and fed them, building them up so much that they began to eat reality. And humanity steered these hungry monsters to gnaw out tunnels through blink of an eye. These black gates became the center of existence. The focuses now turned to siphoning light to the lightless stars, both to power them and to give them that comforting illumination to the peoples who had been forced to otherwise give up their radiance. But stars die. The focuses were lost either because the stars grew hungry and devoured them, or were consumed in kind by humanity's great engines. The galaxy has not shone for an age. Such waste of power was unthinkable, but it was becoming clear that it would not shine even if all the great works were unmade. This 
was the end of the Age of Men, and many believed it would be the end of everything. But not humanity. Ever wise, ever resourceful, they had a way to outlive the light. Their plan sounded like madness. They were to feed the black holes. All of creation was to be consumed, save that which was essential for survival. All the dead suns, all the cold planets, every derelict ship or station, every stray atom of dust, all of it was to be devoured. Black holes were hungry, but even they gave something back. The energies they created during the feeding had long been known to humanity, and it was that power that fueled the Dark Age. We would never again sail in the lightships, nor could the black gates be held open now, but humanity repurposed these ancient tools and turned those abyssal spheres into wondrous engines. Starships, they called them. The starships ventured out towards the dying lights of other galaxies, knowing that it would be a journey of millions of years to get there, and millions more to return. Humanity cared little for that. A trillion years later, the resources of another galaxy would be ours to feed into the forges and keep our universe alive for another epoch. The starships grew larger and faster. Humanity could keep us all together, huddled in the warmth of their imagination and comforted by their refusal to give in to any challenge. Yet in time, after an age so vast it defies understanding, the starship stopped coming home. The universe was exhausted. To return with their spoils would cost them more than we would gain. You must understand, by this point the Dark Age had gone on for an eternity. From the creation of this universe to its beginning was a span of billions, perhaps trillions of years. Yet the Dark Age was a thousand times that length at least. Entire galaxies had been born and burned away to nothing in the span of the Dark Age. It was, some said, the end of time itself. The universe had grown old and perished, as all things must. Now, even the black holes were dying, coughing out their last and finally giving up their hunger. It was time, we believed, to sit in somber silence and grieve the passing of creation. Of course, humanity never did get the hang of funerals. The black holes left behind corpses, and in those dead spheres that we now use for our sustenance, stars shone because they compressed hydrogen into helium. When they had no hydrogen, they crushed helium into other materials, iron being the most common. Black holes, it turned out, were no different. They had spent eternity crushing down the universe, and over trillions of years they had been bleeding the universe back to us. Now, at the end, all that remained was their hearts of iron. An iron age began, and it began because humanity, in their madness, discovered that even iron stars can shine. They have but the tiniest fracture of the energy of their ancient ancestors. So little that the mythic lightships would have taken all of history to reach walking space if iron light was all they had. Next to no power at all, really, but humanity had all of history to master the art of energy efficiency. The last age began a million years ago, or so we think. Truth be told, it's rather difficult to accurately measure the passage of time, 
and our distant ancestors would surely think that this is the end of everything. We burned up all the stars, we dismantled the universe from parts, and now all we have are islands of iron that can no longer reach each other. And even speaking takes longer than the intergenerational sailing ships that first united us. We are alone in the cold, in the dark, and surely there is nothing left for us but to watch the iron stars twinkle until they, like everything else, twinkle no more. But, by the light of these iron stars, humanity dreams of a future. They escaped the death of their world. They outsmarted the death of the stars. They found a way to outlive the universe itself. Something tells me, when the iron stars finally die, humanity won't go with them. End of story. Story number two. The Iron Duke, written by Ice Cream and Wine. On the bridge of the Earth frigate Wellington, David Foreman jerked back to consciousness and regretted it immediately. Damn, I hurt all over, he thought. He took a quick look at his surroundings. Shredded bodies, twisted metal, escaping gas and the smell of smoke and tasted the metallic tang of blood in the air. Crap, he said as he remembered what happened prior to his blackout. He attempted to get to the control console, but was stopped by the fact that he was still strapped into his shock harness. Looking around, it was more than likely that this fact had saved his life. Disengaging himself, he staggered to the console, or what was left of it. The comms panel was still active, and he keyed in the inquiry. There dead Dave came the voice of Vender, the ship's AI. Who's dead? said David. All of them. They're all dead, Dave. You are the only member of the ship's roster still alive, said Wender. Give me a sit-rap, Wend, said David. Primary weapons offline, missiles expended, railguns destroyed, said Wender. Not good, thought Dave. Can we jump? We can initiate jump, but we would explode approximately six seconds after this end of the initiation sequence. No weapons, no engines, fact us for a game of soldiers, thought David. What happened to the fleet, and what about the Brillick fleet? inquired Dave. Both sides are down to one ship, us and the carrier currently flooding our view screen, said Wender. Our 78 ships took down their 280-odd ships. Not bad. Not bad at all, said Dave. State of enemy carrier. Some damage, but still spaceworthy. Currently spooding their engines, said Wender. How long until their engines are ready, said Dave. Scans indicate that they will be functional in approximately nine minutes, said Wender. Why are we still here then, said Dave. We are currently at the stern of their vessel. They cannot bring any of their undamaged weapons to bear, said Wender. Ramming them is not an option then, asked David. Engines are offline. All we have are attitude thrusters, said Wender. We have nothing that can hurt them, said Dave. We have 11 point defense lasers, which are currently firing on a damaged section of their hull. If we had another two weeks, we could scratch their paint. If they have any, said Wender. As we aren't going anywhere, if we initiate a jump, how badly would we be damaged then? Nowhere near enough, said Wender. Bollocks, thought David. A thought struck him. Can the attitude thrusters move us towards their engines? Yes, it can be done, said Wender. Do it, and also get nine of the point defense lasers to fire in random directions, said David. Simulating loss of fire control, 
said Venda. What would be the point of that? If they think that we're losing control, they may not take us as seriously as they should, stated Dave. They took us seriously enough to board us, said Wenda. Crap! How many and how long do we have? asked David. Too many, and about six minutes before they cut through the bulkhead. How long for us to get to their engines? asked Dave. Can we get into the engine housing? We are there now, and yes, we can. We are small enough. Get us as far in as we can, said David. How long to initiate jump? asked David. Three minutes, replied Wenda. Cutting it close, but should be doable, thought David. Initiate jump, said David. Jump initiated, said Wenda. What damage will we do to their engines, said David. The engines will be destroyed, and it is possible that resulting explosion will break the back of the ship, said Wenda. We'll never know, said David. Two minutes, said Wenda. Apropos of their situation, David asked, Do you have any thoughts of an afterlife? I'm a machine. Machines don't have afterlives, said Wenda. Really? said David. Access all TV archives were a dwarf in the 1980s. A few seconds passed. Cynic in heaven? That's ridiculous, said Wenda. You never heard of it, said David. Based on your responses, I thought you might have. No mind. I believe in it for you. One minute, said Wenda. David coughed and wiped the blood off his face. His fingers traced the blood trail up his head, and as he ran his fingers through his hair, a thought of his childhood struck him, and he started to laugh hysterically. <laughs> My foot in your ass, he screamed, and then his world turned white. End of story. 1906 How I Became a Token Human, written by Marilyn of Many the sign said, Earthling Wanted, in large print. And I, a perfectly eligible Earthling, said, Heck yeah! Busy space station life bustled around me as I stepped close to read the details on the hollowboard. Other ads were the usual range of odd jobs and social events. But this one was specific. And it couldn't have been more perfect for me. A courier ship was contracted to deliver someone's pet cat to them in the deep space I guessed that a breakup had happened while their owner was away, or their temporary job had turned into a permanent one. And while the couriers were perfectly capable of getting the cat there, it was several days of travel, and they hadn't the first idea of how to care for an earth animal. Well, I thought, with no small amount of smugness, they just got themselves an expert. I copied the holler ad onto my phone, then found the vaguely private corner of the public seating area and activated the call. I stood up straight and professional, as if I was meeting a wealthy new client with an ailing Samoyed. Would they want a detailed resume, a rundown of the places I'd worked and trained? My range of expertise in animals began small, or perhaps a description of what I would do in various unexpected scenarios. Nope. The octopus-like alien who popped into view, deep green, harried, and female, unless I miss my guess, only had two questions for me. Great! You look like an earthling, she said. How experienced are you in caring for cats? Very, I said, ready to add more. Good! Can you leave immediately? Yes, I decided, thinking quickly. I just have to grab my things. Where's your ship? Where's your ship? Meet us at the semi-aquatic spaceport before the shadow covers it. She glanced at something off screen. We leave before the solar sails have to fold. Be quick. With that, the call ended. I blinked once 
then shoved the phone into my pocket and sprinted down the corridor. Passerby stepped aside and gave me disapproving looks, especially the group of red-pink bug folk who chatted after me in their own language. But I dodged through the loose crowd without hitting anyone, nearly tripped over a smaller-than-average water wool, which would have been disastrous given their column of jello consistency. But I hoped that it would be a quick apology. Are water wolves really that fragile? I wondered as I ran. My biological studies had all been earth-based. I knew the best way to hold a comedian, pet a cat, to catch a chicken, but I had no idea how the friendly blobmaster worked. Well, maybe I'd find out. I skidded into my small room and threw things into the suitcase. There wasn't much to pack, since this was a temporary stop. Five minutes ago, I'd been planning to trudge back to Earth and look for a new job. My old workplace was under new management and doing a reshuffling that made for a perfect time to take a quick lap around the galaxy. Something I'd always wanted to do. It had been a great vacation, but there wasn't much call for a veterinarian in space. Or so I thought. One more jaunt, I told myself. It pays well enough to be worth it, and they clearly need my help. With a look about the room for anything I'd missed, I zipped the suitcase and shouldered my backpack then cancelled the rest of my reservation at the control panel by the door. A few more button presses and the door whooshed open to let me dash through the residential area, towing my suitcase on its repulsive plate behind me. The bag was much better than my old weedy case, which was always tipped over when I turned quickly. This one did have the tendency to slide around like a toddler on ice, but I was an old hand now at pulling the strap just right to keep it from taking anybody out at needs. And honestly, I usually walked at a more reasonable pace than this. But time is short. I glanced at the multi-clock as I passed the elevator hub. Sunset was coming for the side of the station. I wondered who had decided to make the station rotate in orbit instead of keeping one side facing the sun. When that was beyond my pay grade. Maybe it got too hot otherwise. Long lines at the food court made me slow down edging past a variety of body types before I reached a clear area and picked up speed again. Success, I thought. Didn't even bump into a scaly tail. This door? That door! I found the dry air breather's access port and hurried into the airlocks where steeply angled sunlight was streaming in. I only stopped once to swipe my ID in exchange for a cheapo force field exosuit, just in case the separation of dry air, wet air and water left anything to be desired. I'd made that mistake once. One experience of scrambling for an emergency cutoff switch in an airlock rapidly filling with water was enough. These octopeople breathe dry air, right? I fretted while I retrieved the exodisc. I think so. They just like more baths to moisturize than I do. I'll be fine on a ship made for them, assuming the one I talk to doesn't live in a scuba suit while on board. But surely, they would have said. Probably. With my ID back in my pocket and the control disc in my chest, using technology was basically the inverse of my suitcase. I shoved out into the spaceport in a cloud of my own air. I was greeted by more air, rows of park ships under the glittering force field between us and the stars, and an impatient-looking green tentacle alien waiting in view of the airlock. She waved me towards her ship as soon as she saw me. Strong arms, that's what they're called. I remembered. I guess I'll get a name for this one once we're on the way. 
With the golden solar sails spread wide, the little round ship looked like a cartoon bat, or maybe a lemon that's wanted to be a pirate ship when it grew up. The epitome of dignity, either way. I made a note to say nothing about that either. Right this way. Stand back while the door shuts. The animal is in the cargo bay and more food and junk than any sane creature could eat in any time we've got. I'll introduce you after takeoff. The green strong arm didn't give me much chance to do more than nod as she spoke. For now, come grab a crash seat in the cabin. I'll introduce you to the crew after we take off too. She sped down the narrow corridor to the quiet slapping of tentacles on the shiny blue floor. I did my best to keep up, despite having to bend over as I walked. The ship was not designed for a tall species. At least, the walls and ceiling were clean white. Not one of those squishy, organic ships that made my skin crawl. Got the human, she announced as the door to the cabin spiraled open. She waved her several tentacles back at me, one pointing at a chair near the wall that had fighting chance of fitting me. Quick, quick. I ducked through the sphincter door, also gross, but less so. Waved at the dozen or so random aliens, then shoved my suitcase behind the chair and sat. The chair was cup-shaped and way too small, but at least the back was flexible. I could feel the localized gravity field in place of a seatbelt. These folks have a lot of faith in their ship's power source. I thought as I lifted my backpack to where it would give my neck support. Here's hoping we don't crash, for lots of reasons. The crew were mostly ignoring me, though in a polite way. Strong arms, brilliance, and a few heat seekers. Octopeople, colorful fin covered by beds who looked like tropical fish that had learned to walk, and little lizardry folk, all air breathers, though two out of the three had aquatic origins. As the engine hummed to life, I shut off my exit field. Damp air caressed my face like someone breathing on me from uncomfortably close. Great. But it was breathable and wouldn't damage my stuff. And we were already in space. Judging by the view screen that had just registered some very quick movement, only stars and a few distant ships were in front of us now. All right, introductions, announced the green strongarm. You can call me Cam. What is your name, human? Robin Bennett. I said, sitting up straight. Earth animal expert at your service. Cam accepted that and rattled off the names of everyone else in the room, then gave a quick rundown of the journey that we could expect. Three standard days, no wormholes planned, no asteroid showers or other hoo-ha expected. And now that we clear the space station, ships and lanes, we could make good time and move about the ship. Cam hopped out of his seat and hit the floor with a wet smack. This way, animal expert. Let's show you your charge and your room. I grabbed my suitcase and followed, trying to be graceful while simultaneously ducking and high-stepping through the door. It was like walking around in a kid's playhouse. At least the cargo bay had the properly high seating. It also had many boxes of cargo, and one metal cage with a very distressed cat. The I-don't-want-to-be-here yodel echoed up every wall. Well, there it is said Cam with a wince. It's been this loud the whole time. I hope that's not a cause for alarm. Not the sound alone, no, I said. Let me take a quick look. Hey, kitty. I approached with a gentle voice and quiet footsteps. The tone of the cat's yowling changed when it saw me, aiming for pity of a volume. Poor little grey tabby sounded very lonely. A nameplate with paragraphs of contact information said PICKLE in all caps. 
Hello, Pickle. There, there, Kitty. It's okay. I greeted the cat with a soothing babble of syllables, letting it snuff my fingers through the bars, only noticing once it quieted that Cam had stayed by the door. Oh, good, said the alien. It likes you. Will you want the whole crate in your quarters, I hope? There's enough room. Yes, definitely, I said, standing back up. The cat mewed in protest. Great. All the food and whatever should fit, too. Grab a sled. At Cam's direction, I helped maneuver the hover sled over the cage. Then down the hall, she led the way with a different sled full of airtight cases covered in labels. Her cot was a more rattletrap of the two, which I appreciated. The supplies wouldn't be bothered with any jolts in height, and an anxious cat sure would. Pickle yelled all the way to my quarters, our quarters rather. Cam was eager to rush off once I said I had everything in hand, and I couldn't blame her. But the noise stopped as soon as the door shut. Mew? All right, Kitty, I said as I took off my backpack. That door seems solid, so you probably won't run off and get stuck under the brake pedal, or however they fly the ship. Do you want to come out? Pickle didn't, when I opened the door, but I made myself comfortable on the floor by the cage and read through the info packet that had popped up on my phone. Pickle was a girl cat, five years old, spayed, fond of cheese and toys that crinkled. Eventually, she crept out and accepted some gentle scritches and a warm lap. I was considering moving to the giant squishy cushion that passed for a bed when the door chimed. Ow! The claws were sharp when Pickle launched off of me to hide in a carrier. I got to my feet painfully, shut the small door, then opened the big one. The ceiling was low in here, too. A maroon and teal frillion stood there, just barely short enough to stand normally in the hallway. Did you bring food, or would you like to join us for a meal? I looked back at the quiet cat. I do have some ration bars, but I wouldn't mind meeting everyone properly. Let me dig out some food for my charger, and then I'll be there. Uh, which way? The frillian gave me directions, then scooted off. I turned to the multiple boxes labeled food and checked the info packet. Pickle had preferences. But of course she was too scared to eat. I left the grey tray of high-quality wet food inside the cage alongside a dish of water and a well-chewed toy mouse that promised to have familiar smells. Then I gave her some quiet time. And I got to some fun time. The crew turned out to be an outgoing and friendly, with many a joke ready about the types of food that my species was known to eat. They were mostly a carnivorous set of one kind or another. Fish, bugs, rodent, not a T-bone steak amongst the lot. They weren't faced by any kind of plant food, but the existence of dairy products as a whole was soundly denounced as a vile weirdness. Honestly, it makes sense, I laughed. Milk is the first food we eat when we are born. Then we found ways to make it into a bunch of other fancy things. Yes, but why? Asked the bright red heat seeker, his lizardly face intent. Organic dripping sounds like the absolute last choice of edible foods. Spoken by someone who has never tasted ice cream, I told him. Or pizza. Those are some of the best foods out there. I've heard humans mention pizza before, said the large grey strong arm. He gestured with something that looked like an uncut sushi roll. What actually is it? I happily explained, then had to go into a tangent about bread, since what was apparently a weird human thing too. Really? None of you folks have food made of processed grains? I asked, to a row of blank stairs. Guess not. But okay. 
It's crushed grain and water with yeast. Those are little microscopic creatures that help turn it into proper food. As I understand it, the air bubbles in the finished bread are their farts. I'm not doing a good job selling this, am I? Um, I swear, it, it tastes good. The big strong arm laughed out loudest. <laughs> no, but uh, keep going. You were going to circle back to the cheese and why it's not rotten. I did my best, eventually giving up while insisting that they would probably like at least some of my species' barbaric dishes if they ever got a chance to try them. It was a fun conversation, and the food was all right, too. A bit fishy, but I'd had worse. I was sad to see the meal end, with everyone scattering off in the various tasks, some of which might have been fun to help with. Untangling cords or organizing cases or deciphering random space messages were my duty was the cat. Pickle was caterwauling loud enough to be heard from the end of the hallway. I hurried in and comforted her again, opening the cage and settling in to rest on the cushion bed with her snuggled next to me. With nothing else to do, I drifted off into a nap that was more restful than expected, given the alien bed. I woke, braved the alien bathroom, then went back to sleep, even after the vacation I'd been taking. It was a bizarre luxury to have no demands on my time. I didn't even know what kind of day-slash-night cycle the ship was on. And it didn't matter. I slept as much as I needed to, ate a couple ration bars, fed them and played with pickle, and I read a book I'd been meaning to get around to. It was nice. Crew members showed up occasionally to invite me to meals, but otherwise I spent the whole trip in my quarters, and as much as I enjoyed the camaraderie of dinner time. The guilt I felt every time I returned to piteous meows kept me from staying out longer. I really would have liked to, though. They even had music night with instruments I'd never heard of. There were spares that I was welcome to try. But Pickle had been scratching at the cage the last time I returned, and if she tore a claw because I wanted to know what an alien trumpet sounded like, then I would have failed in my duty. So I stayed with the cat who purred like an outboard motor and I did some more reading. It was still nice, peaceful, but I'd be lying if I said I didn't want to take a turn on the radio station, listening for gossip and distress calls and triple-encoded secret messages. The end of the trip caught me off guard. Cam showed up with a ten-minute warning before the time we needed to have the crate stowed in the cargo bay, and me seated in the cabin. Already, I blurted. Right, I'll be packed up in a jiff. Got the sleds? In a rush of gathering things, ushering Pickle back into the carrier and hurrying into the cargo bay, I didn't really have time to feel things about the trip ending. But I felt them anyway. I'd miss my little snuggle buddy. I hoped she had a good life ahead of her. The man waiting at the spaceport a few minutes later, as close to the landing pad as he was allowed, was a grizzled old space marine type. Stereotypes said he would have been more at home with some vicious beast as a pet but I'd seen enough mismatched owners in my time to just smile at how eagerly he waited, and the way his face lit up at the sight of the cat as heartwarming. Pickle's distressed mouths turned to welcoming mews when her human scritched her through the bars. I didn't have to remind him that he owed money before he could take her away. He was on top of that, though I'm sure Cam would have made sure if necessary. The two of them handled the transaction with speed, then, to my surprise, he opened the cage, and there, and landing pad. Pickle clawed her way up his thick jacket to settle purring onto his shoulders, like this was where she was meant to be. Maybe 
It was. Thanks so much for bringing her to me, the man said to Cam with a nod to me as well. Gotta introduce her to the new family. Now everyone I love is in one place. Cam said a polite goodbye while I gave him a warm smile and wiggled my fingers at Pickle. The cat gave me a slow blink, purring hard and nuzzling his chin. Then the pair of them walked off to the rest of their lives. Come grab your stuff, Cam told me. He left a big tip, which I'll pass over to you. No way we could have done the thing to calm this creature ourselves. Thank you, I said. It was my pleasure. It really had been. Going home seemed anticlimactic now. It was just a pity I hadn't been able to socialize with the crew more. They were good people. I followed Cam back into the ship for the last time. Or so I thought, until a pair of crew members called from the radio station about a message from their sister ship. They had a fuel leak and only managed to coast into orbit and moon four days out, said a small frillian. They need fuel, repair supplies and extra food for their cargo. He looked up at Cam and me. I don't know what planet the cargo is from, but if you don't have anywhere to be just yet, I grinned. I don't, as a matter of fact. I'll happily come along if you'll have me. Cam flipped a tentacle at what was probably a shrug. Why not? It worked out well just now, and I want to see if you can play a flange horn. Me too, I said. Let me just grab some provisions before we go. At least one of you folks has to try pizza. This was years ago. I never did get a regular job back on Earth, and I don't regret it one bit. A couple of the crewmates did regret pizza, but at least it was funny. End of story. 1907. Story number one. Man's BFF. Written by Gorbash-san. It was shortly after first contact with humanity that the conflict took place. The galactic hegemony accepted the offer by the Terran space-born military to bring a diplomatic team to the nearest hegemony outpost to the Terran sphere of influence. This was normal and even considered more peaceful than a typical first contact. No misunderstandings took place. Linguistic analysis and translation flowed quickly. It was as though the Terrans were all as experienced as the hegemony itself in dealing with alien cultures, wildly different languages and cultural rules vastly divergent from their own. Hegemony police interpreters were assigned to issue a standard offer slash demand of compliance with the hegemony law. It was not arduous, most species, in fact, found it beneficial. For the first, converted to Terran standard time, 28.6 years of membership, all hegemony applicants would be granted full rights as a member, protection and support from the hegemony peacekeepers, access to the Galactic Communications Network, access to the collected libraries of all member species, and in exchange, they are expected to contribute 5% of their species' collective financial gains from any business conducted between member species, and grant the hegemony access to all their own libraries and communications networks. This is all quite reasonable. It benefits both parties, and the only caveat that prevented what should have been a smooth integration was the requirement for adherence to hegemony law regarding uplifted and enslaved species. Any and all species that have been artificially enhanced and placed into the subservient role must be immediately returned to the natural pre-modification state. And any such examples of modified beings currently living and unable to be returned to the prior state must be handed over to the hegemony for evaluation 
study, sterilization, and placement on a garden world where they could be complete their lifespan in comfort. The hegemony inspectors immediately found fault in the Terran claim that no such law was in violation. They had no sentient species that had been placed in such a position. The inspectors designated canines as a species in violation. They were clearly being used as some kind of servant species. It was also clear that they had been modified dramatically. The sheer variety of shapes and sizes attested to that. Let alone the very publicly acknowledged fact that canines had been artificially enhanced to enable speech through cybernetic implants, and the clear signs of cognitive enhancement based on mapping and patching of human DNA into dog genetics. Terrans continued with legal status of canines as both Terrans by birth and humans by unified declaration by the Terran Council, upon which sat no less than 20% of the members on four legs rather than two. Canines, by the claim of Terrans, were in fact considered a part of humanity, not a distant and separate species at all, but a fully integrated half of a dual species. This was an anomaly and unacceptable by hegemony standards and practices. The laws defined this as a clear case of species being taken out of its natural development and evolutionary cycle and accelerated along a biased path. Clearly, the poor canines were too indoctrinated to see that, but they would be freed from this tyrannical situation. Enforcement fleets were immediately dispatched to all Terran holdings to retrieve and liberate the uplifted species. What followed was a series of messy, confused, and blood-drenched incidents involving many hegemony representatives, officers, and enforcers suffering lacerations, puncture wounds, and various other injuries, all from the supposedly enslaved race that they were there to set free. At the same time, the hegemony court system was beset with thousands of new cases, all originated from the Terrans the vast majority of which were fielded by legal firms apparently owned and operated by Terrans of the canine variety, citing accounts of assault by hegemony representatives whose jurisdiction was in question as a membership to the hegemony had not yet been finalized. There were also cases exploring hegemony-instigated racism, institutionalized discrimination based on genome, refusal to recognize declared species of preference individual rights and self-determination of species, inadequate consultation by government representatives regarding legal status, assumption of authority in regards to biological humans being accused of owning canine humans, and a host of minor personal injury, emotional distress, and disruption of business cases. A civil rights advocacy group calling itself Best Friends Forever somehow found a way to access the hegemony galactic communications network and began spreading reports of the incidents with the Liberation Fleet, skewed in ways to bias the viewers' opinions towards the group's view on the situation as discriminatory and an overreach of power and authority, downplaying the actual legality and wording the regulatory laws and guidelines that had been in place for millennia. The same group also began instigating protests in front of the judicial officers handling one of the Terran-initiated cases or claims, calling for people to demand the cases be heard and upheld, accusing the courts of discrimination against outsiders, despite the fact that some had only been filed more than hours before the protest and had not even been put on the docket, let alone seen by any judicial representative in a position to act on them. The hegemony member races would never again be clean from the meme flood that accompanied every aspect of the conflict. And... 
That's what it was. A conflict. Never a war. Never a movement. Never anything else definable. It was just an endless conflict. Every time an aspect or a specific incident or case was resolved or acknowledged and reparations made, another rose in its place. The legal and social fallout, even if all cases were resolved quickly and peacefully, would be decades upon decades of handling. Entire species would reject hegemony authority and withdraw from pacts held by countless generations. Economies were upturned in every rule, law, regulation, or guideline that was ever questioned for being less than fair was brought to light as yet another abuse of hegemonic power. Never mind that many of these laws had been carefully balanced to fit among hundreds of species over time so as to minimize harm or unfair treatment to any single member race, or provide advantage over other races to anyone. Such a system can never be perfect, but it functioned until the Terrans were subjected to one of the very first and oldest laws in the box. And worst of all, they were persistent and vindictive. It was as though each and every one of them, both two- and four-legged, was so insulted and enraged at the attempt to liberate the canines that they had dedicated their lives to making everyone and everything involved in the incident pay dearly for it. One thing was clear, looking back on the conflict. Never tried to come between a man and dog. There is no gap to find between them. Truly, they are one and the same, and neither forgiving when you hurt the other. End of story. Story number two. Sportball, written by Cal Wallace. Electronic message to Overseer, Grand.Overseer Unit 1 at GrandServers.HRG.LK1 from Biological Unit 47. Biologic.unit47 at grandservers.hrg.lk47 Research Outpost 48277 Regarding Human Habitats Report 87W41PO Sports Overseer, please see my report on human pastime of sports. Sports appear to be a reflection of the highly competitive and aggressive evolutionary process of their homeworld, Earth. As our studies show, their genetic progress relies on an adaptive, yet slow, form of inherent mutations. Cole assures me that this is known as kill or be killed. I noted his demeanor was not aggressive, that his facial muscles seemed to display a certain pride in this. As a species that developed on a death world, with a high gravity, dangerous and highly aggressive and intelligent predators, and all manner of venomous fauna and poisonous flora, it appears that they celebrate both mental fortitude and physical strength. Despite their limited intelligence due to their common ancestry, see entries, ground apes, the dark angels, politicians, their robust physicality is well known. I have deduced that sports and their associated fervor by which other humans view and follow these games are an unconscious desire to feel as a part of a tribe and to have means of venting their inherent deep-rooted violence and challenging nature. Carl, our previous test subject, took me to a sports game called Boxing. In the sports game, two humans, usually of similar genders, weight and height, face each other in a square, for some reason called a ring, and proceed to assault one another with padded hand coverings. This continues until a ceremonial bell rings, the rotund human in terrible striped camouflage waves madly, or one of the humans is rendered unconscious. When pressed as to the reasons for this battle to occur, it is apparent the two humans fight do not know each other at all, 
and aside from the false conflict, have no call to destroy one another. Cole assured me that that is fun and exciting. Quote, they smack each other about, gets the blood pumping. Now shut up. I got money on this. See entry, gambling. Despite the obvious barbarity on display, the human crowd grew excited enough for me to lower my oral receptors, and my scan showed elevated levels of adrenal fluid and cortisol, as well as increased respiratory and circulatory functions. The next day, Carl, with his winnings from the game, see, entry, gift, took us to a game of football. He assures me that this is different from damned yank football, which illogically involves the hands and only once or twice appears to involve the human lower limbs, aside from the occasional stamping of the head organs, sexual organs, and running. Two teams of garishly clad humans, always of the same gender as their opposition, line up in varying battle formations. A human in similarly garish clothing blows the high-pitched whistle, and a small sphere of indeterminate composition, inflated with a dense air mixture of nitrogen and carbon dioxide or oxygen, not as light as helium, but as heavy as neon or nor argon, has passed around, apparently with the aim of fitting said sphere into the lower part of their interior limbs, into a netted area. Carl, in an effort to assist his chosen team of humans, would often shout directions such as, Kick it, you twats, and boot it. I'm still studying the entomology of these phrases, and how much each phrase does, in fact, help the team, if at all. Again, I detected higher levels of adrenaline from the observing humans, as well as higher levels of volume and alcohol. Despite my best efforts, I failed to understand the offside rule, and Cole quickly surrendered to the futility of his explaining it to me. Once more, my oral senses were overwhelmed. As stated previously, these sports seem to be both physically and metaphysical surrogates for human conflict, with one or more humans representing tribes, states, or nations, with which humans can experience the trials and issues faced by their ancestors in a relatively safe environment. See entries, football hooligans, rioting, and alcohol poisoning. In an attempt to help me understand these sports game rituals, Carl showed me what he calls nerdy shit. I found these more palatable, and see them as an example of how, despite outward appearances, humans do, in fact, possess a quiet faculty for excellent logic. Chess is a miniaturized physical representation of battle. Several pieces, matched on either side of the board and often of opposing colors, take turns moving in some odd patterns. Rules exist to prevent some pieces being misused. It requires logic and forward thinking. See entry, preparing for the worst. This game, for want of a better word in digital, is fun and something I excelled at. I have attached the rules and schematics for the game to this message. I must warn the servers and all the units in contact with the humans, however, of the risks of playing with any test subjects or otherwise. Cole accused me of cheating and stated that I was a rotten computer bastard and on one occasion flipped the board in anger. I found this quite pleasing, though I am not sure why. As of yet, Cole has not communicated with me verbally. It is my intention to take him to his favorite establishment and bury the hatchet. I am taking credits from the financial units in this sector, and I am also taking a small axe in case I have misinterpreted yet another human idiom and it is expected of me. I hope sincerely I have not. I have grown quite fond of Cole's company. Humans are curious, 
but I would like to recommend that we continue to follow their customs. They may further our own endeavors with their incredibly different approaches to existence. I will broach the subject with the test subject when his neurotransmitters have reset to their usual levels. Cole is, as he often says, I am a good lad. End of story. 1908 The Witching Hour, written by Communist Red It was a lazy, late summer afternoon, and the lingering heat was enough to make Brigadier General Wilkes sweat as he pressed himself into his uniform. Technically, he was off-duty at the moment and didn't need to be in the formal uniform, but in frontier towns like the one he commanded, things could go very wrong very quickly. Wilkes made sure to walk the length of the Palisade Wall every morning and every evening as a result, and it wouldn't do to have his men see him out of uniform. So he sighed, buckling his saber before mumbling a goodbye to his wife and heading out the door. The short walk to the main gates was pleasant and uneventful. The general whistled along merrily to himself despite the heat. Halfway up the stairs to the parapet, however, he stopped. None of the usual easy chatter or whispers from the lookouts reached his ears. At the top, the guards were standing in watchful tension, staring along the road to the west so resolutely that they hadn't noticed his arrival. What's going on here, Lieutenant? Wilkes called to the officer in charge, who started and began a guilty salute. None of that, the general said testily, waving him off. What's the problem? It's a new messenger, sir, replied the lieutenant. It's getting late, and we've seen no sign of him. O'Connor, right? Riley O'Connor. This is his third trip. Nice, sir, the young one. It's possible they had to stay the night at Liston. Possible, but unlikely. You shouldn't have sent for me. O'Connor should only be making a routine trip, taking news to the nearest hub city and bringing orders and information back to the central city. It was more likely that he'd been waylaid on the journey, or simply became too complacent and was dawdling on his way back. Wilkes considered his options. What about the forest? Have you seen any motion in there? He asked, pulling out his binoculars. Nice, sir. They're riled up, all right. Couldn't make out what kind, though I thought I saw a boggle or two. They can count well enough to know we're missing a boy, and they can sense our nerves. He's right there, thought the general, sweeping his gaze across the dark forest and top of the nearby hill. It seemed to be a lie, with shifting shadows of various shapes and sizes. It was more than a couple of boggles too. His nose twitched and there was a chill along his neck. The air reeked of foul magic. It looked like the whole damned forest had come out. There was no use sending men to search for O'Connor like this. They'd be set upon by a hundred fey the second they rounded the hill. It was up to O'Connor to make his way back down to the town. In the meantime though, Get me Major Fletcher, Wilkes ordered the lieutenant. Have him call out the guard and the militia on duty, along with Perkins, Badeau, and Gordon. Any priest you can get a hold of, too. In truth, the general didn't know what his plan was, or if this kind of force would be needed, but he wasn't going to get caught unprepared. The creatures in the forest were agitated enough that they might mount an attack or whether O'Connor showed up or not. If he did... He would either be tear him into pieces in view of the fortified town or charge any rescue force that Wilkes led out. Mad news all around, he grunted. 
then joined the others on the wall and steadfastly staring along the road. His only hope was that the sun would stay up long enough to keep any vampires or shades out of the fight. But the minutes ticked by. Soldiers filled into the yard, and the road remained empty. Where the hell is O'Connor? In his defense, Riley O'Connor had started a homeward trip enthusiastically. He carried several satchels filled with news and orders and letters. Everything that Central had deemed relevant to their town, in the mass of information they dealt with, had been sent to the hub city, listed, for him to take back. The frontier town messengers, including him of course, had returned the favor with this week's reports and any notable or usable data from their town, which would go back to Central for compiling and distribution. A month ago, on the frontier towns, had unexpectedly come into contact with the frontier town of a completely different central city. Information, technology, and resources were being traded between two nations as quickly as possible. And for the last few weeks, the messengers had been heavily burdened with the resulting papers. Today had been no different, and Riley's enthusiasm hadn't lasted long in the heat while carrying the heavy satchels. As long as I'm home before nightfall, he figured, Everything will be fine. Only when he stepped into the cool shadow of the hill near the town, the sun was setting behind it, did he realize the danger he was in. He needed to run, and run hard, back to the town. Even then, the guard might not open the gate. He knew they wouldn't risk the town for one messenger. As he readied himself to run, he felt an alien urge, not his own, upon him. A compulsion to walk up the hill and enter the dark forest, that topped it. He shivered in anticipation, will against will, before fear woke him and he sprinted for the gate. It was too late, he knew. Already he could feel them grasping at him, and he screamed and beat at their hands with the cloth and... Uh, steel? Still, lad, hold still! Dermot Connor, calm yourself! It's us, you young fool! shouted the lieutenant, desperately trying to hold on to him. The group of soldiers with him were shifting uneasily, but to Riley, they might have been angels. They began to march briskly back to the gate, where three wide ranks of soldiers were lining up against the wall. They met Brigadier General Wilkes and Major Fletcher on the left wing. So here's the boy, eh? the general said gruffly. No harm done, fortunate lad, very fortunate. We'll look after you now, but you'll have to look after yourself a little too. I should think, uh, Major, pass the boy to one of the spare pistols and a bayonet, will you? You'll have to use that as a knife in a pinch. Take him to the back row. He's safest there. The second the boy had appeared on the location, Wilkes knew they had two options. He could man the walls, leave the gate closed, and watch as the boy was gutted by whichever fey creatures got to him first. Probably a werewolf resulting in the loss of the messengers and the important new information from Central. His men's morale would drop, and he'd have to train up yet another young messenger, but casualties would be at a minimum. Alternatively, he could march out to meet the threat, but he knew that he would certainly lose some of his men, at the least. More critically, whenever the gates were opened in view of the host on the hill, there was a chance of them flooding in and losing every man woman, and child in the town. Once outside, they could not return until the threat was seen off, but there was one more important consideration. Brigadier General Wilkes was really fucking sick of watching children die. 
So now he stood with three ranks of fine men, young and old, boisterous and fearful, each one armed against the shadows. Around them, priests were chanting, holding torches and bowls of holy water. They scratched runes and wards into the earth around the lines of red-coated men. The repellent and dissuasion symbols were not as strong as the banishing runes carved into the palisade walls, but they would give pause to the smaller fae, particularly the less corporeal ones. Father Peter had merged some of the newly discovered runes with some obscure older ones, claiming that their commutative effects would be revolutionary, and was even now carving them carefully and far too excitedly into the road. The sun was nearly down, the shadow of the hill edging up towards them, already some creatures would be darting from the safety of the forest, although the lingering sun could still burn or dissipate the more sensitive majority. All ranks, make ready, called Major Fletcher, then more quietly to the general. Ammo? Load silver, called Wilkes. The silver shot was more expensive than the lead shot, and they wouldn't get their next shipment for two weeks. But there was no point loading lead if they were facing werewolves first. And the werewolves always came first. As if on cue, several werewolves burst from the foliage and bound down the hill. Wolves! cried Wilkes. But all he thought was predictable. The werewolves had always acted as shock troops, relying on their speed, size, and ferocity to break through. These hadn't even waited for the sun to go down fully in an attempt to catch him off guard. In reality, this was a mistake, as the bulk of the Fae were left behind, too slow or sun-sensitive to assist. And a lone wolf, no matter how powerful, would always go down under a pound of silver. Hold! On my mark! The laid werewolf topped the small rise. First rank! Ha! A rolling crack of thunder. Down! Reload! Second rank! Fire! Down! Reload! Third rank! Fire! Down! Reload! First rank! Fire! Down! Reload! Fire at will! Several wolves had gone down in second and third volley. Only one had managed to reach the front rank before being cut down, and the rest had fled back towards the hill with silver bullets in their tail. There was no time to relax. The sun was well and truly set now, and all manner of fey creatures began to seethe down the hill. Little goblins, boggles and bogarts, a couple of trolls and a few shades, flanked by gnolls and great spiders. Fairies and wraiths flitted above them. Books thought he saw a banshee, while sick, ugly witches and hags began to prepare spells to cast from behind the mess. Load, lad, was all Major Fletcher said though he gave this general a pained look. Hold! On my mark! First rank! Fire! And the military machine sprang to life, firing volley after volley after roiding rifle fire without ceasing. Dozens of vague creatures fell, screeching and settling wilks on edge, but it couldn't stem the tide. Fireballs! Take cover! Someone screamed. Several witches' spells bubbled and fled in colored spheres towards the line. Some of the men flinched or ducked, but the deadly orbs didn't harm a single man. Some of them had deflected, exploding into thick, burning goo on the other fey. 
Others seemed to have an energy sucked from them and into Peter's strange carvings. They rolled flickering into men's feet, where they guttered and died. The priests roared in triumph, waving flaming torches and holy water. It was their job to keep the spiritual beings at bay. The rest of the swarm hesitated at the line of wards and ruins, before pushing or being pushed past them and onto the first rank, who were waiting with bayonets fixed. The line quickly devolved into a bloody hand-to-claw combat, but the second and third ranks supported the best they could. Major Fletcher narrowly avoided being disemboweled by one of the remaining werewolves, before forcing his silver saber through the beast's chest. From the parapets above, Perkins' sharpshooter squad fired over their comrade's head to hit high-priority targets. One of them swore suddenly. Vampire, sir! Bayonets! He called and Wilk saw several shadowy bat shapes fluttering towards them from the hill. Several of them bulged and transfigured suddenly into pale humanoid figures, landing with screeches and thumps around and even inside the now thinned ranks. At the same time, the witches had begun to hurl hexes high into the air, so that they landed amongst the men, exploding into colorful but painful globs of energy. The lines began to fall into disorder. But some made ready in time. Their bayonets, hardwood, reinforced with iron, swept forward. One by one, the vampires were pinned and staked through their heart. Okada slashed viciously with his bayonet knife, forced one back onto the waiting point of a comrade's bayonet. The remaining shifted back and fled. Perkins's sharpshooters took out several of the witches, who had come closer to lob their spells against the men and forced the breast back. For a second, there was a lull. Werewolves slain, vampires fleeing, and witches useless. The horde looked for guidance and direction, and saw only a line of death in front of them. The more aggressive pushed forward, thirsty for human blood. Others began to creep back, looking to cower in safety, mindful of the fey corpses that they stood amongst. For their part, Wilkes' men were possibly in poor shape. His front line was decimated. The remains of the other two looked shocked and twitchy after fighting off the vampires and witches. Priests bustled about the wounded, ensuring there were no fatal or transformative wounds, but Wilkes saw the fear in his enemy and wondered at it. The hate and the fear and the anger he felt was nothing new. He had known it all his life, locked in a wooden cage of a town while nightmares owned the outside world. But now, a thousand years of technology and rituals passed around by humanity, and with these men at his back, he felt something new. He felt a fiery drive of a man, of a species that should be free, against the filth that riddled his land and that stood against him now. Fix bayonets, Wilkes called. The Major looked at him, concerned. Sir, he began. But the men were attaching bayonets to their rifles, as if they were parade day. He saw one man take the bayonet from a wounded man beside him. He must have lost his own. They stood at attention, iron-rimmed bayonets gleaming in the firelight. Two ranks, he called then. Forward, march! The men stared at him, some near tears, some with the same fire he felt. But they marched, God 
blast them. They marched in two straight lines, away from the safety of the walls and into the darkness. Wilkes raised his saber and marched with them. For the rest of his life, he could never say whether some arsehole had brought a drum and began to beat time, or if it was just blood pumping through his head. But each man marched in perfect step. One, two, one, two, towards the bewildered and hideous mass that faced them. Some of the braver fey creatures growled and came towards them, but as a slash and a stab, one, two, one, two, and they were down, the lines never missing a beat. A man fell to a new foe or an old wound, Wilkes couldn't tell, but he was replaced instantly by a member of the second rank. The fake creatures before themselves paused, then drew themselves up. Then they fled, fled from the prey they fought back, fled from the line of men in perfect sync, fled from the stabbing blades and the brightness of the torches. The nightmares fled in fear. Charge! Wilkes had screamed, but the men were already charging, paying back an ancient enemy with all the hate and anger they and their ancestors had ever suffered. As if from a distance, Wilkes saw himself amongst the madness cutting down leering creatures in a frenzy. When he came to himself, he stood on the edge of the forest with two ranks reformed. It stunk of magic. The air was thick and oppressive. It had always taunted him from a distance, daring him to step into it and never be seen again. Now, though, he could sense the tang of fear deep inside the silent woods and he almost dared to step into the challenge of the Feyback. Not me, he thought. They are still too strong, and we are too weak. But my son, or perhaps my grandson, maybe they will walk in without fear. He held out his hand to Father Peter, who handed him his flaming torch. The general swept it through the undergrowth of the forest's entry, and the flames flickered and spread. They would not live long, he knew and the air so thick with magic. This is a symbol of what will come, he said to himself, and to the men arraying behind him, and to the forest. Then he paused, waiting for a response that would not come, turned, and marched these two lines back down the hill. The living walked, or were dragged, into a space between the inner and outer gates, where they could be checked for concealed shapeshifters or transformative wounds, a single fay or thrall in the town could mean destruction. While the priests sprayed them with holy water and prayed over them, Major Fletcher called out the names of the dead, whose bodies had been left outside the gates for retrieval tomorrow. Ensign Bly, Ensign Cadwell, Lieutenant Cork, Ensign Davies, Corporal Dusk, Ensign Edwards. The list droned on, and Wilkes tried to shut it out. If he had just kept them in the town, those men would still be alive. But he saw O'Connor, shell-shocked and bloody, but alive, and shook his head softly. Each man had sworn to give his life to others. O'Connor's survival was a testament to that oath, and the information he carried was the reward, the victory. More bitter as it was, it was certainly their victory, was a result of years of knowledge passed along like a weapon, until he 
could strike. Every man, woman, and child in this town would give their life to pass the torch on to the next, just a little bit brighter each time, until the darkness could no longer stand, and humanity was rightful owner of the land that was theirs to explore. That's what it meant to be human. That was why they had won. He just had to carry the torch a little while longer. End of story. 1909. Story number one. Demon Devourer. Written by Samuel Evans. The office of the subjugation of demons employs countless demon hunters but even more chroniclers to record the actions and ongoings of various hunters, both licensed and otherwise. Included are the transcripts from the subject of inquiry, as is policy with the administration. Each notice regarding the individual is considered restrictive and is to be safeguarded and withheld from those without a need to know. The following folder is the first documentations of the subject. Documents from Demon Hunter Chronicler Badge Number 2049 Official document status restricted. I have been assigned to my first mission as a demon chronicler. As is commonplace for new recruits, I have been assigned to an unlicensed hunter that has just popped up in our peripheries. I found the hunter at a cafe in a local town. He quickly made contact with the person requesting an exorcism and sat down for tea with the man. The man was a local human priest dressed in a traditional black robe with a white clerical collar. I recognized his contact from previous reports. Two licensed hunters had already failed. The first hunter survived, but the second suffered an unknown fate, and was assumed deceased. Both chroniclers died, so I shall maintain a level of distance from the hunters to allow myself time to escape should the worst befall him. I observed the hunter and made sure to record his appearance to discern his species. He had a normal human features, with brown hair, dark brown eyes, Remarkably, he looked like he had never seen a day of work. His skin was soft and not harsh like many human peasants. Most likely, he was of noble birth and was well-kempt as a result. When the waiter took his cup away, I made sure to sneak to the kitchen and grab it from the kitchen counter as it sat on. Further testing using my assigned kit confirmed my hypothesis. He was indeed human. While not all too uncommon, Humans are by far the weakest hunters and most unpredictable. They also tend to be the least perceptive race, so remaining unobserved should be no difficult task. Uncharacteristic of human hunters, this one managed to maintain a decorum benefit of a higher race. Throughout his dealings, he was calm and spoke the language with elegance. It's not often humans impress, but this one was a step above the rest, giving credence to my theory of noble birth. After he spoke to his contact, he followed him to the road. The contact provided a carriage to transport them. They traveled at a leisurely pace, so I was easily able to follow from behind. It wasn't long before they arrived at the demon's lair, a decalferin manor. The man leading led them through the front door. I was able to follow by flying through an open second-floor window. Floating down the stairs, I witnessed the contact showing the hunter to the basement door. The hunter, callously and cockily, asked for some refreshments, before swiftly opening the door and closing it behind him. I barely made it in before he'd slammed it shut. 
Due to the nature of the Dockelfarin architecture, there was only one entrance to the basement from the house. Before entering, I did notice the symbol on the door. Walls to keep whatever was trapped down there from entering the rest of the abode. But that mattered very little. Kulfa always built large basements that interconnected to a massive tunnel and cave system. As soon as the hunter closed the door behind him, his serene and serious face quickly jumped to a twisted and maniacal smile. His entire presence and aura changed to something almost demonic, possibly something worse. Frankly, it scared me deeply. He slowly walked down the steps, taunting the demon with each step. Come out, little demon. It's time to play. Demons do not take to taunting very well, and so one of the basemen quickly manifested itself. It took the form of a drowned woman, dripping water from her grey gown. Her face wasn't that of a normal mortal race. Her eyes were large and black. The black seeped out, cracking and winding in lines outward from the eyes. She had large teeth and an overly large mouth that dripped with a drool and her hair looked like slimy black algae. The hunter paid it no heed, and neither did he seem to sense or fall victim to any of the demon's fear or illusions. I've never seen someone stay so calm while demons attacked them with fear, but yet he walked with the same maniacal expression on his face. At this point, I should have realized, while many had their means to resist fear and illusions from a demon, no one has ever completely negated it, or saw past it before. The demon grew in anger and began shifting around the basement while using its telekinetic abilities to throw furniture, boxes, casks, crates, and whatever else lay there at the man. For his part, he managed to dodge most of it. But during the demon's tantrum, she managed to hit him with a few items. He camped his maniacal smirk, despite the injuries. The demon acted quickly and lunged at him in a bid to possess the hunter. Surprisingly, he did nothing to dodge her, and it seemed he almost accepted the demon into himself. By now, I had noticed another demon manifesting itself. It looked virtually the same as the other, and it wailed while the other demon attempted to possession. Then I saw something I have never seen in training or read about in any document or book. I didn't know that it was possible or that a demon would, but it happened. The demon tried to escape its victim. I saw it emerge from the hunter for a second, but I saw him grab it with his hands. He was able to grasp the demon and pull it back and bring it into himself. The other demon began showing terror, an emotion that is almost unimaginable for a demon to exhibit. He began to slowly retreat. The hunter looked at the demon with a maniacal grin growing larger. Then he lunged with an unimaginable speed and grasped the demon. I saw his aura, his spirit, his shadow grow all at once, still attached to him but taking on the form of a monster. And it, he, began to consume the demon. I do admit it was at this time I failed in my mission to observe and chronicle. I flew away in terror. I slammed open the basement door and I flew as fast as my wings could take me to anywhere that was not here. He was sure to have noticed me then, as all pretense in holding my invisibility fell apart. I swear I heard him say, See you next time, 2049. I flew and flew until my wings gave out. I couldn't feel my hunger, my thirst, my fatigue, because all I could think about 
was that no one should have been able to do what he did to those demons. What kind of maniacal beast consumes demons? Demons exist to consume, not be consumed. Excerpt from Interview 001 with Demon Devourer Interviewer Regarding your first recorded case, how exactly did you manage it? Demon Devourer First you get really, really hungry. Interview How did you, a human, learn to consume demons? You could argue that I am no longer human. Are you a demon possessing a human then? Not really. Then how did you learn to consume demons? You other races don't think much of us, do you? It's true that humans aren't as physically strong as a lot of races. We can't swing mighty warhammers made of solid steel, and we don't have as much magical ability as most. We can't control massive fire spells that can destroy armies. But what we do have, what humans have, is adaptability. We learn and change faster than any other race. I adapted. How? I tried really hard. End of story. Story number two. The Foundation, written by some person, 21. State Archives 41220XX. Topic, The Foundation. The Foundation, as they called themselves, were originally not even known by their own species, or anyone else for that matter. They were an anomaly, which was ironic considering what they did as an organization. They adhered to a simple code. Secure. Contain. Protect. We originally thought that meant that they were a secret branch of a local government, something not to be worried about, as our invasion destroyed nearly every government on the planet. Then, their logo started appearing everywhere. On vehicles, on buildings, on uniforms, and soon enough, our minds. When we entered a building that we know as site redacted, we expected not much. But what we found was strange. They had signed guards and what looked to be prisoners. When we entered the building, a guard walked up and said, We aren't a part of any government, and what's in here can end us all. Leave or face consequences. Of course, we didn't leave. When we stood our ground, the guard noticeably shook his head and pressed a button, which sounded an alarm. That should have been our first warning to leave. We, of course, didn't leave and instead forced the guard at gunpoint to tell him to turn it off and surrender. I can't. What's in here is deadly for us all. I just pressed the alarm to allow everyone a chance to escape in time. The second warning. And that, too, we ignored. The alarm's audible shouting of containment breach. Thinking we could survive whatever it was they kept down there. Sometimes I wish we turned around and left. As everyone ran, we found a map and saw a section called Heavy Containment. We thought that meant it contained heavy weapons and such. Well, technically it did, if you just looked at the nuclear warhead. But like everything, we ignored what would be our third and final warning. What happened after we reached the Heavy Containment and opened those cursed doors was utter madness. Creatures that defied physics, reality, life, death understanding, and everything we thought true came out. We were slaughtered, but that line suggests we never stood a chance to begin with. A few of us got out alive somehow, some worse off than others. And all we could do as we ran away, as those same guards tried their best to hold that wretched and cursed horde from abomination itself, 
It didn't help that after around 22 minutes, we heard a nuclear explosion at the site and watched as the more of those guards and soldiers flooded the area. Three years later, after a hard-fought battles and deaths, our forces couldn't keep up with the expenses that the human guerrilla fighties caused us in all forms. Psychological, monetary, lives, you name it. They really did have a gun behind every blade of grass. And after all this time, all this therapy and medicine, I still can't get over what those soldiers did at that site. How they lived, what they did, and how they sacrificed so much only for the nuclear option to be the only available solution. I've learned one lesson from the experience, though. Never screw with anything related to the Foundation, and anything they secure, contain, and protect. End of story. 1910. More Metal Than Man, written by Foxcorp. I heard many tales of humans' endurance in my time as a soldier. Below grunts spread stories of humans replacing their broken bits with steel, just to stay in the fight. Officers would brief us on their ability to replenish losses, getting slightly queasy while refusing to elaborate how. Everyone knew humanity embraced the replacement of lost or damaged organs, but I always thought many of the stories were heavily exaggerated. That is, until I walked into a bar one fateful night. It was on the planet Kandish, in a region of dense jungle, a region I once served in. Memories of the pouring rain and swarming insects had hit me like a truck, and I fled to the spa to escape the pain. I sat down at the counter and ordered a beer, one of my favorite human inventions. To my surprise, the cloaked being next to me was a human, seemingly lost in thought while drinking a glass of whiskey. After drinking half my beer, I gained the courage to begin a conversation with the man. You serve here too? His glazed eyes suddenly came back to reality, and he lifted the scarred face to meet my gaze. I... His head shook mine. Half of his face was withered and wrinkled, peppered with scar tissue and deep gouges where healthy flesh used to be. His one biological eye was clouded and scarred. The other half of his face was almost all made of steel. Where he once had skin and bone, now only existed scratched and scrapped metal plate. His mechanical eye focused on me with a menacing red bead, all evidence of his sacrifices during service. You look a little worse for wear. You get that all here on Kandish. The man took another drink of his whiskey. Not all of it. The man seemed to go into a trance. I knew the expression. He was going back to the war within his mind. It was back in 2547 when I got the eye. A routine patrol around Samson capital. The soldier's recount was so detailed. I also fell into a trance and experienced his life like a movie. He walked calmly with his commanding officer and a couple of soldiers. He was at the back of the group. The four men patrolled down a busy street. Civilians surrounded the men completely, parting like waters around a ship as they carried on with their lives. All of the soldiers were drowsy. They'd been on Samson for over four months without incident, and not a single shot had been fired out of any of their weapons. They got complacent, thinking that they were totally safe, and didn't even bat an eye when they came across a small group of Samsonites who wouldn't part around them. There were three, two of them staring at the ground, one of them staring directly at the now old man who sits beside me. His eyes were boiling with rage. The soldier saw it and dove to the ground, screaming. 
Get down! The other three soldiers reacted too slowly. The Samsonite blew up in a shower of gore and shrapnel. A sharp piece of metal lodged itself in the soldier's eye. His commanding officer and two friends weren't that lucky. The pressure killed his commanding officer immediately. Shrapnel went straight into the man named Chips's heart. He only lived for a matter of seconds before falling into shock and dying. The third soldier, Ryan, got hit by a mountain of shrapnel, yet he still lived for another couple of minutes. He died in the old man's arms only seconds before the paramedics arrived. In the aftermath of the event, three human soldiers were killed, three Samsonite terrorists blew themselves up, 15 civilians died of their injuries, 25 more were injured, and the old man got his bionic eye. Samson, I muttered, it's been a while since I've been reminded of that crap hole. I served as a sniper there, 2547-2550, most three years of my life, other than Candish, of course. The human seemed to fixate his gaze on me, tuning in with a hundred percent attention. You have fed? There was no point lying to the man. Was. When the war was over, I went home to a new era. I was so certain that we'd pull it off eventually, but you buggers just never seemed to die. I chuckled at my remark and downed the last of my beer. For my last year on Samson, I was tasked with hunting down the one man. The man who had come to be the only one I never could kill. The man perked up a little. Tell me! I asked the bartender for another drink, and while I waited, I continued the story. It was a human. I remember command making that fact excruciatingly clear. They'd tell me, make sure you aim true. They have a tendency to keep coming back. I thought they were just fecking with me. They weren't. I came across this soldier in an urban hell that was Kadar. He was alone, bloodied from previous fighting. Command told me that he was the one with the most lethal Republic assets on the planet. He didn't look so lethal through my scope. The bartender came back with my drink. Thanks. I took a swig and went back to my conversation. He was just sitting there, up at the crosses right in his head and squeezed. The shot looked perfect until he jerked his head to look at something that I couldn't see. What should have went straight through his dome ended up hitting him in the jaw. It was broken and dangling from his head. I thought to myself, there's no way in hell he survives that. The bastard scampered away, and that was the last time I saw him on Samson. My command told me that he was still active. We left the planet only two weeks after I'd gotten word. The human soldier across from me was deadpan as if he was processing something far beyond what I'd said. What's wrong? I asked. The human refocused and said, What a coincidence, that. He took another swig of whiskey. I lost my damn jaw in the last weeks of Samson. Must have been me. I laughed and took a swig. The human, realizing the absurdity of the situation, fell into a fit of hysterical laughter. He raised a glass and bellowed, To Samson! To Samson, I replied, and took another drink of my beer. I then turned to focus the conversation back to the jungle we found ourselves in now. What about Kadesh? How'd you fare here? The human, now thoroughly drunk, responded, No, it was shit. Lost me arm, lost me leg, even lost me socks one time. I lost my arm and leg on the same day. Now, that's a story and a half. He stopped to drink some more and went into another trance, dragging me along with him. He was walking through the dense bong, with water up to his waist and bugs swarming around his face. He turned for a split second to talk to his buddy Ramirez, something along the lines of, The Packers are going to all the way this year, I'm telling you, our bad luck is over. 
Ramirez was a fan of the rival team, the Detroit Lions, and wasn't quite so sure about the Packers' upcoming victory. Your boys haven't been made a playoff in five years. What makes you think that this one will be any different? The then young man wasn't just going to take that, so he shot back. At least the Packers have won a Super Bowl. Just you wait. It's gonna happen this year. This was apparently a sore subject for Ramirez. The Lions had made it to the Super Bowl last year, but got beat up in a very close game. Neither of the men spoke for at least a minute before the young man was rocked by a powerful explosion. Just seconds after stepping on a landmine, the man collapsed onto a nearby tree for support. That's when he caught a glimpse of the reflection of a sniper scope in the tree line not far from his position. The soldier raised his gun and took aim at the sniper, pulling the trigger on the sniper right as the sniper shot at him. Wait a minute. A sniper shot at him, and at the same time as he shot. Hold up, I said. Did you hit the sniper? Taken aback, the man replied, Yeah, but he just grazed the side of his head. I must have jerked the trick. I faded out of the conversation completely, as I instinctively reached the scarred tissue on my skull. The area of my head where I just barely avoided death by a human that I was trying to hunt down once again. I locked eyes with the soldier in front of me. The jaw, the arm, the leg. I'd shot a soldier in the jaw on Samson. I'd shot the same soldier in the arm on Kandesh. After he'd stepped on a landmine, that same soldier managed to graze the side of my head. My God, it's him! He abruptly stopped talking once he noticed the scar. Where the hell did you get that? Kandesh, after I shot a man's arm off, after that man stepped on a landmine. I saw his bionic eye focused. His grip was tightening onto something at his hip. I realized my hand was also instinctively planted on my holstered gun by my side. I stopped to think rationally for a second. Of all of this long in the past, I took my hand off the gun and instead placed it on my beer. You're the ghost. He seemed to calm himself down. You're the sharpshooter. What are the chances? I took a long drink of beer. That's on this night the two of us would end up here once again. He took another drink of whiskey. <laughs> he turned to me and said, Must be the universe's way of telling you that you're a shit shot. All of the tension in the room suddenly vanished as we both broke out into hysterics once again. Go look at the mirror. The two of us laughed heartily for the rest of the night, exchanging stories about our experience and all the different conflicts we found ourselves in. Tomorrow, I'll be going to visit the old soldier for a packer game back on Earth. After our encounter on Kadesh, I've started thinking a lot about our unknowingly shared experience throughout the years. I'm starting to think that it's a damn good thing that I couldn't make the shot count. After all, who would have paid for all my beers that night if I had? End of story. 1911. Story number one. To Uphold Duty. Written by JCB112. It was all over, but she didn't mind. Alaya was an industry sector administrator. In this era of the near post-scarcity, in this period of history where human prosperity reached heights previously impossible to even conceive of, this sector was but one of thousands, tens of thousands, more like it, devoted to the insatiable drive for the human industrial complex. Yet on this day, on a day seeming like many others, the administrator would see her last morning cycle. She volunteered. She wanted to send a message, 
a clear-cut declaration from humanity. A message that read similarly to the UN Declaration of Sapient Rights. Humanity shall henceforth, now and forever, stand against the forces of tyranny. To whomever approaches on the sanctity and the dignity of the sapient, know that humanity will not tire, will not stop, will never falter in our resolve to uphold these universal rights, which we hold as fundamental, irrefutable, and self-evident. Alaya wasn't in the military. She had no interest in such affairs. But in circumstances so specific such as this, she knew no one could do what needed to be done but herself. As every human was, she was willing to fight if push came to shove. This was just her way of doing so. She had seen the horrors of the Lacolades had committed on the aliens of Andromeda. The news feeds had just been released not a week ago. It was with this that humanity had collectively declared war on these cosmic horrors, even if it meant their sights would be distracted from the actions of Andromeda and every neighboring galaxy to focus their attentions on that of the Milky Way. Scientists have long speculated why the Milky Way was so devoid of life. Perhaps this was it. Perhaps the Lacolades had left it in this empty, lifeless state, and Earth had developed life far too quickly for them to come back and finish the job. And so Alaya, a vintage music playing in the far distance of her lonesome station, stood in front of her massive viewscreens, her visage broadcasting to the rapidly encroaching Lacolades. This is Administrator Alaya Volkran of the United Nations of Earth and Luna. You are encroaching on human territory. This will be your one and final warning. Do not approach us. Or you and your fleet shall be intercepted with the appropriate force. This is all. No response. She expected this. A part of her stirred, her heart shuddered in place as the mismic clouds of inky darkness continued ever forward. She knew that on board were hundreds of thousands of aliens, all suffering, all long since converted, and in perpetual anguish on board these organic leviathans. All of them having lost their rights to self-determination ages ago. Now present for their sadistic satisfaction of the Lacolades. She'd lay them to rest today. She'd lay everyone who encroaches on the small chunk of human territory to rest. They were foolish to start this war. Perhaps there was a better way to approach this. Perhaps it was plain old dumb to suddenly act as the center of attention distracting the Lacolades away from their current sadistic endeavors in the neighboring galaxies in the local cluster. But even if they were able to spare a single sapient, a single minute of torment from these sadists, it would be worth it. The sacrifice would be well worth it. She heard the announcements. The aliens were bruised, battered, and hopeless. They needed a new rallying cry. They needed an example to be set. They needed to see that the Lacolids were mortal. Little was known about the exotic materials that made up the Lacolid constructs. It was, for all intents and purposes, however, impervious to contemporary and conventional munitions, projectiles, and even direct energy weapons. Yet there was one weapon that the most exotic of materials could not hold up against. The power of the sun. Or more specifically, the power of the sun going supernova. 
And as administrator, she not only had the ability to do so, but the authority to do so as well. A liar. Another voice made itself known within a control room. Let the military handle this. Just give us the command keys and... No, a liar. I'm a civil servant of the United Nations of Earth and Luna. I have an obligation to remain at my post until I am dismissed. And unless you have an order from the Quadrant Overseer or the UNEL Department of Industry, then I shall remain at my post, fulfilling my constitutional obligations. I, the voice straightened up. Yes, Administrator. May the spirit of humanity be with you, ma'am. And to you, Captain. A single nod from the Administrator was all that was necessary. Before she flinched. Her voice cracked for a moment. Goodbye, Michael. I love you. Terminate connection. Darkness started to cloud at the very edges of the system. The view of Andromeda was clouded and obstructed by this unknown force. Her senses began screaming at her. The light flashed, the alarms bled, as the administrator let out a deep sigh. Her eyes strained, focused, dead set on a single command line she'd written up hours prior. Everything was ready. The lacolette seemed to hesitate somewhat before approaching. Perhaps they noticed just how advanced their new prey truly was. An entire solar system turned into a forge of industry. Worlds gone, replaced with large teleconstructs of varying sizes and makes. Millions of ships ferrying cargo from one station to another in a series of long, unending lines, forming what can be superficially described as conveyor belts in the midst of space. The star itself was contained, raised inside of what seemed to be a massive stellar engine, one that powered the whole system, one that was one keystroke away from taking them all into oblivion. Part of a liar believed the Lacolettes would turn away upon seeing this, and they almost seemed to, until they didn't. As they began approaching, swaths of ships resembling undulating tentacles connected to a central miasmic mass of darkness. So this was it. United States Declaration of Sapient Rights, Article 5, Clause 2. All citizens of the United Nations of Earth and Luna shall commit to the defense of humanity should the need arise. For the sanctity of the sapient, for the dignity of humanity, for the continuation of the creed of civilization, no sacrifice is too great, no deed is too small in the upholding of the self-evident truth. I am Sector Administrator Alaya Lee, UNEL National Identification Number 22412521. Today, the 21st of May, 2971, at 12.23pm, you now stand at time. I commit to record the fulfillment of my obligations to the United Nations Charter. Nothing was left of the system. Nothing was left of the invasion fleet. Nothing but the commitment of humanity, to the preservation of the dignity of the sapient. End of story. Story number two. Humanity's Soul, written by Cromper69. Every creature in this universe has a soul. Some races devote their souls to certain fields, such as engineer souls, or doctor souls, or the souls of soldiers. Yet, when humans were discovered, their souls were an enigma. 
We soul-seers were able to see your race's souls and determine what they will be useful for. Yet, when we dove into their soul, we were scared. No, horrified. To explain why we were scared, we explain how our ability works. When we soul-see, we look back into a race's history and determine their future. With that done, we looked at humanity's soul. We saw fighting. Fighting from the earliest recollection of memory. For the fighting death was everywhere. Bodies and bodies stacked on each other. Leaders discussing war and insults hurdled at each other. Yet, for every death, a life was saved by the kindness of others. Through all of their history, they hated and loved each other. Killed and married another. We thought it not possible from such a race. When we questioned them on their history, they gladly explained their entire history and their philosophy, or rather, different philosophies and religions. We are going to have a nightmare, a nightmare of politics awaiting us. Their soul, humanity's soul, is that of hate and love, an ever-changing relationship. End of story. 1912 the Big Mistake, written by AIS. In the year 2021, engineer Michael Porter finally got his new request approved to work on the ELIMP project. The ELIMP derives from extreme light infrastructure, nuclear physics, and, in simple terms, is the world's first 10 petawatt laser in the world. Two years later, he came up with the theory to use this big-ass laser as a way to send signals into space, but with such intensity that the beam would pierce the fabric of the universe and come out at the designated distance, faster than the speed of light. So extremely long-range, almost instant communications. The advantage of such technologies were obvious, so NASA got involved. Since the ELINP laser was built in an underground facility, and not really meant for sending signals into space. NASA brought Michael Porter in Florida and put him in charge of building another big-ass laser, but this time dedicated to put his theory to practice. Americans, being American, decided to build a laser even stronger than the ELINP. So, the Extreme Long Range Extreme Light Communicator, or the ELRELI project, was born. The world's first 50 petawatt laser. Equipped with an advanced targeting system that could compensate for Earth's rotation, for the target speed, and so on. It could send a beam that could hit a nickel placed on the surface of the moon. The most simple way to send data using the ELRELI was Morse code, but there were other options, like transmitting into binary, simply by converting the on-off into zero-one. Decimals or hexadecimals were also possible soon. We had a way to communicate, but no one to communicate with. Sure, we used this to communicate to rovers on Mars, to space missions, but still, we felt like Alexander Graham Bell must have felt like. We had a phone, but no one to talk to. So the next step was the following. We built a receiver, like a big satellite dish, around the ELRELI. When the ELRELI was not used to communicate to our own equipment like rovers and shuttles, it was pointed at all known planets we discovered, one at a time, and it would send a simple message like, Hello, 
in binary towards the surface, and we would listen for a response. We figured that if anyone would receive our signal, they would send back something similar to the location of the transmitting device. Two years it took to go through all planets we knew about. When we finished transmitting to all the planets we had discovered so far, we also started to transmit to locations where we only suspected planets might be. We also sent signals to spaces between the planets and stars, into the blackest void, aiming to reach beyond the observable universe. Years passed, technology advanced, other ELR-ELI devices were built, including one on our first colony on Mars. Smaller, similar devices were built, more efficient, designed for just communication between Mars and Earth, or between Earth and space missions. The original ELR-ELI had only one job, to send our hello into space, and to listen for a reply. It was in the year 2059 that the reply came back. It was a similar signal, an extreme light beam broken into segments. It copied the original signal that hello we sent in binary, and had some additional signal at the end. We translated it as two times two. Amidst the chaos and excitement that broke out, we finally managed to send back an answer. Four. So started our first communications with a race that called themselves the Mari. Right from the start, it was clear that their technology was leaps and bounds ahead of ours, but it was also clear that they were friendly and willing to share their knowledge with us. Communication was slow and frustrating via the ELRELI, but because we were different species, binary remained the only language that both civilizations could understand. We started to exchange information about us. Among the first things exchanged were the periodic tables from each civilization. As a result, we found out that they were two were carbon-based lifeforms. Apparently, they were smaller than us, about a quarter of our mass, and a bit different. More legs and four arms. But their atmosphere was pretty similar in composition to ours. And, apparently, with their advanced medicine, they had a span of life of 600 years on average. This discussion led us to the first present we received from the Mari. They sent us a very complicated chemical formula, but only with elements from our own periodic table. The Mari were declared unconditional allies when our scientists discovered the formula was for a very interesting substance that would cure cancer amongst other 20 or so diseases that still plague our civilization. After this came ideas for clean energy, formulas for new types of building materials, lighter, stronger, and more durable. They sent a map of the stars between them and us. They sent us ways to accelerate the terraforming of Mars. It was like they couldn't send us all that they knew fast enough, and we couldn't decipher all the information that was coming fast enough. We had thousands of scientists from all over the world working on all the information they were sending. The communications were slow, and the volume of information so large that many mistakes were made. From deciphering wrong to overlapping of projects, to missing bites caused by different cosmic events. One passing comet between Earth and their planet caused such a distortion of the message that instead of a formula for a material that could be used for spaceships' windows, what we received and deciphered was the formula for some type of biodegradable styrofoam. Ten years after we made contact by phone with them, we asked them for a way to make communications faster. We asked them to meet us. They responded that while they did have FTL ships, 
They couldn't spare one at the moment to make the journey towards Earth, even with their faster ships. They calculated it would take almost a year for the trip between us, and apparently they were engaged in a war, and all ships and resources were directed towards the war effort. The news about the Mari being at war got to the world's leaders in their mother of all turmoil. All talk about unconditional allies was forgotten. All information transmitted towards them was stopped. The teams of scientists working on the data that we had from the Mari now all had at least two military observers each. Paranoia was starting to rise its ugly head. Alarmist questions and conspiracy theories were running rampant. What if we are next? It was a mistake to send that signal into space. They want us to develop the Earth, to do all the work. And after that, they'll come and take it from us. The cure for cancer causes autism, and so on. Thankfully, not everyone panicked. The chief scientist in charge of the project, ALRELI, sent back a simple question. Who are you fighting, and why? The answer that came back was... Expansive. Ten years ago, we were the first life form outside their system that they had ever contacted. Or, to be fair, that contacted them. They intercepted our signal by chance with one of their planet satellites. Then they made a device similar to our ELR ELI to answer us, and even copied our method of calling in the dark, searching for other civilizations. With their more advanced technology, they achieved results faster than us. In less than a year after they started broadcasting into the dark, they received an answer. But it was not a friendly hello. It was a fleet of hollowed astro. Inside, swarms of bugs-like creatures. On the surface of the meteors, giant plasma-spewing bugs acted as ship-to-ship -ship weapons and propulsion. A race of unall-consuming roaches had found them, tracking their signal, and was set on devouring them, and everyone on that lived on their planet. All attempts of communication were rebuked by the bugs. They were merciless and implacable. Their preferred method of attack was to crash into the Mari ships, pierce their hulls, and swarm them with overwhelming numbers. Then, using those ships to land them the planets below, and to start their cycle of eating and multiplying, until everything was consumed. After that, to break the planet into media-like chunks, and launch themselves again in space, in search of other planets. Now, about eight years into the fight for their survival, the Mari were down to a single planet, their home world. They will survive as long as possible, but their chances for them to repel their voracious enemy was almost zero. They will continue to send us all their knowledge so that we could have a fighting chance if the bugs ever find us too. The message ended with a question. Would you like to know more? If... Before this message, we were afraid. Now, we were afraid and ashamed. But now we had an enemy, and our unconditional allies were on the verge of extinction. The people that started the new golden age of science on Earth were dying for eight years now, and never asked us for anything. Instead, they gave us all they could. We asked them for weapons, ships, engine designs. We asked them for FDL. We asked for everything we thought that could give us a chance against those bugs. And we promised them that the first warship we will make by these designs will come to their aid, filled with volunteers. 
that must have elicited some bitter smiles from their part. They answered that they already lost close to 5,000 ships. One more would not make any difference. Stay safe, they transmitted. Stay safe, grow strong, and don't repeat our mistakes of trusting the universe is a kind and friendly as you are. Still, they began transmitting us all the data we needed for an FTL engine, for ship-to-ship weapons, ship designs, formula for hull materials, air recycling engines, and whatnot. So much data that all other projects were put on hold. Everyone was working on deciphering the data needed for the ship. The ship that we arrogantly named Cavalry. Thousands of contractors were hired to build it. It was a project that united the world. A futile gesture, probably, but a gesture to express our gratitude for all the Marie had done for us. The cavalry started to be built even before the information was finished coming through. Sure, errors were bound to happen. Like after we started building the hull, the airlock seemed too big and not compatible with our other ships and space stations. So we corrected them and made them smaller. Living quarters again. They were too big and comfortable, a waste of space. Storage for weapons it is then. The main weapon of the ship seemed kind of weak, like it would take some time to pierce the hull like this, so we made them bigger. Maybe that's a human thing. There is no such thing as an overkill when it comes to bugs. So we added other types of weapons too. There was so much unused space all around the hull, ready to be filled with guns from a sleek, smooth-surfaced hull we made a hedgehog of a ship, bristling with weapons, railguns, missile ports, point defenses. Also, some nukes, because, uh, because, uh, thick bugs, that's why. Life supporting systems. We had basically to install like ten of them to ensure that it could sustain the crew. We knew that they were smaller than us and obviously consumed less air, water, food. But we had to install ten of everything that we'd related to life support. Air filtering pumps, water recycling, hydroponics. All these had to expand and multiply. Luckily, the design of the ship was spacious enough that we had room for everything. In six months, cavalry was launched. It had a crew of 1,350, all volunteers. Total length was almost 800 meters. With the hull from the new lighter material, it still had 120,500 tons. It had taken quite the toll on our resources as the planet. But there was not a human on the entire Earth and Mars that did not feel filled with pride as the cameras transmitted the launch around the planet. We watched with tears in our eyes as the cavalry galloped towards our friends, the Mari. Our friends said the trip between the planets would take almost a year, but the cavalry pushed its engines to maximum. The trip only took four months. Maybe the initial estimate was based on the older type of engine. Maybe our modifications made the engines better. The reason was not yet clear. But everyone sighed with relief when the cavalry finally arrived in the Mari system and found Mari ships still fighting around their home planet, facing what looked like a cloud of meteors. It was a strange kind of battle, with the sleek Mari ships constantly dodging the meteorites and their bugs plasma spews while trying to coordinate their fire two or three at a time, against one single meteorite. Even if the Mari ships were clearly more maneuverable than the bug-infested meteorites, the sheer number of enemies was so great that the cloud of meteorites was actually chasing the ships and pushing them towards the Mari planet. 
The cavalry didn't waste any time or thought. It accelerated towards the meteorite cloud, all weapons hot. It reached weapons range in two minutes flat and began spitting missiles, real gun slugs and high-powered laser beams like the wrath of God. It took full advantage of the elements of surprise and drove straight through the cloud of meteors, getting even a point defenses in range and firing those guns too. It came out the other side of the cloud. After cracking three of the larger meteorites and countless other smaller ones, the space between the meteorites was now filled with debris, bugs, and various bug remains. No meteor had successfully crashed into the cavalry's hull. The human ship turned and made another strafing run by the enemy formation, this time keeping on the edge of the meteor cloud. A few plasma shots from the bugs managed to hit them though, but they did not penetrate the hull. It just corroded about half an inch deep on the surface. The hull was 20 inch thick, so it was no immediate danger. That did not mean that the captain was not pissed as hell that the bugs dirtied his brand new ship. He initiated a transmission on all available channels towards the Mari ships to stand back and gave the order to launch nuke number one, pet named Gaia. The missile with the nuke looked no different than any of the dozens of other missiles launched in the same instant by the cavalry. It beelined straight towards the biggest meteorite in the cloud impacted in a cloud of red fire and red dust, followed by a beautiful, visible shockwave that turned to dust all the meteorites in the immediate vicinity. Cheers went out on the human ship as almost half of the remaining enemies were pulverized or at least cracked. Not wanting to leave the enemy a chance to sober up, the cavalry charged once more into the fray. The Mari ships, invigorated by the shift of power, rejoined the battle and followed the cavalry's wake. This was when the human captain noticed that the surviving Mari ships were all small ones, barely corvette type. If even that, the cavalry would pass by the enemies, hit like a sledgehammer, cracking and pulverizing all the bigger meteors. And in its wake, the Mari ships would nimbly concentrate their fire on the still active enemies, giving the finishing blows with surgical precision. Two hours later, the meteors were all cracked and emptied of their foul contents, and for the first time in more than ten years, the human and the Mari managed to open communication channel with audio and video. After all the pleasantries were exchanged, in the excited discussions that followed, the humans found out with astonishment that a really big mistake was made. When receiving and deciphering the instructions for the ship due to our communication, switching from binary to hexadecimal and back, we ended up multiplying everything in the hull by 16. 16 times bigger, 16 times thicker, and from this everything about the ship was modified. This explained all the extra space inside. The need for 10 times more life-supporting systems, all the space in the hull for extra weapon pods. Everything made sense now. A big mistake, an expensive mistake, and in the end, a happy one. The commander of the cavalry just made a series of grunts from which the crew managed to understand that, Huh, I guess size does matter. End of story. 1913 Story number one, Throwing a Very Human Ability, written by Stumpy Jim. Why are human arms so small? 
Traxon turned to look at his friend, his long arms draped over the table in front of him. He followed his gaze and saw that a human just entered the pub, hands in pockets. Of all the bizarre things humans have, resist, do, live, or whatever, why is it that they have the shortest arms of all the GR? I don't know, Traxon huffed as he turned his eyes to his own arms, dangling low to the ground. He scanned around and found that everyone else had to have long arms. I would pity them for having difficulty reaching for things, but then they jump so well I doubt they would even have that as a problem. Yeah, Traxon rubbed his head. Wonder why that is. The two went back to their drinks for a time, relaxing until a stool stood next to their table and up hopped the human. Hello, the human beamed and placed the long straw to his mouth and sucked on it for a time. Heard you were talking about me. Traxon frowned for a moment. How do you know we were talking about you? Human hearing. The human chuckled, sucking on the tube straw again. Right, right. Traxon's friend's eyes narrowed, then looked around the table to see what the straw was attached to. Traxon was too curious about the odd straw, so he leaned over the table for a peek. He blinked with disbelief when he saw the massive keg the straw was feeding out of it. Yeah, the stuff you've got here is a bit weak, the human shrugged, but I guess you can't help it. When beer is classed a grade B controlled substance, so uh, I make do, right? Traxon and his friend stared at the human, shocked that Brinks, the drink notorious for binge drinking with the youth, was being drank by the keg by human, and said human, thinking it was too weak. What were you talking about? the human asked. Oh, Traxon's friend cleared his throat. Right, I was wondering why humans have such small arms. Small? the human frowned, glancing at his arm. I suppose it is small, comparative, but there is a reason to it. What would that be? Well, uh, it goes back to the hunter-gatherer days of humanity, the human began. As you know, unlike most other predator types of sentience of the GR, we humans are endurance predators. Chase prey all day until they're exhausted, able to keep from overheating with sweat glands and so on. Right, right, everyone knows that, Traxon nodded, taking a sip from his glass. But what do the short arms have to do with that? I'm getting to that, the human smirked. All of us sentients evolved to have similar features, to use tools and advance, right? Well, the primary tool humans used in the beginning was a spear. You mean pointy sticks? Traxon's friend scratched his nose. Why would you need that? Spears were used for hunting primarily, and war when needed, using them to stab and kill our prey after we corner it. Makes sense. But you see, in a lot of cases trapping our prey was very difficult, since most of the time they congregated in large open areas. They would just run away far enough so that we could do nothing to them, and for the carnivore to attack us instead. What does any of this have to do with your small arms? Traxon's friend asked impatiently. I'm getting there, the human smiled. You see, a good advantage of a spear is reach. A long stick and a stick them into the pointy bit. But what's better about them is that they soar through the air faster than we can run. Even better with fletching, which then led to the bow and arrow. So what we would do as hunters was throw our spears at our prey to impale them with the spears, getting them. Traxon and his friend looked at each other, then the human. Sorry, uh, throw? Traxon worked the strange word in his mouth, finding the oddness of the human language working in his mouth. What do you mean? Right, sorry, the human laughed. I guess you wouldn't know that, since your bodies aren't really built for it. 
It's the reason why darts aren't in these places. Man, I miss playing darts. Can you explain, then? The human frowned for a moment, then left Traxon and his friend. Later, he came back with a knife in his hand. It's really better with the demonstration. Would you get up, hold this knife, and chuck it as hard as you can at the headboard above the counter where you are? Traction, just as he was told, stood up from the chair, taking the knife in hand. Right, so what you want to do is to try and make it stick in the wood, okay? Traxon didn't believe it was possible, not from where he was standing. Even with his long arms, there was no way they were long enough to reach the wood and make the knife stick. Pulling his arm back, he moved his arm forward and letting the knife go. As expected, it didn't go far, clattering to the ground. Good try, and but don't feel bad. You and many of the other sentients don't have bodies built for such a maneuver. The human said, and he went to pick up the knife on the floor. He came back and faced the wood board above the counter, where he told Traxon to throw the knife. I'm fuzzy on the exact details, but human arms are built for explosive output, adding the maximum amount of energy when throwing something. It's reason why humans can throw things that can go 100 miles an hour, like a baseball. I believe that's about, uh, 367 Ls. No way! Traxon's friend shook his head in disbelief. Over three times the urban road speed limit applied to an object that you throw? Yeah, the human nodded, his face calm. I can show you. Traxon and his friend watched the human, along with the rest of the pub, since the little display a few moments ago, wind up his arm, holding the knife by the blade. Then the arm blurred with a frightening speed, expended outwards, knife no longer in his hand when it stopped. At the same time, there was a metal shuddering sound coming from the counter. There were gasps of shock and awe when everyone saw that the knife was stuck in the board tip first. See, human arms are built to efficiently transfer power into objects, so that if we throw something, it can go far and fast. The human said as he went to take the knife out the board, tossing it up in his hand. It's not exactly the best thing to throw. The weight is weird and unbalanced. Now you can imagine how Dutch damage a spear can do to an animal or some other living creature when thrown by a human. Traxon and many of the patrons of the pub looked at their own large, long arms, shuddering at the thought of being impaled and killed by a long stick. Humans! The audible sigh came from the crowd. They're so weird! End of story. Story number two. The Ape, the Alien, and the Underappreciated Reptile. Written by Louis Le Diamond. My nerves were screaming at me as I boarded the human transport. A human frigate patiently waited outside to guard me from the aldrich and unknown horrors of the universe. It was my first day as the Vierda ambassador to Earth. I was more than qualified, but these humans were new, unknown, even with my animal friend Feder and my closest friend Jupia at my side, I could not help but feel isolated. Feder was a flying reptile from my planet. Nobody understood my connection with her. An animal and a sentient. Bonding. It was practically unheard of. But something about this reptile was friendly and inviting. A complete lack of judgment and expectation filled her heart. But the first contactor, having made a stellar introduction to the humans, it was now my job to secure a peace deal and act as an ambassador and diplomat to these strange apes. The journey to Earth was long and uneventful. The horrors of the cosmos were sufficiently deterred by what the human technicians described as their massive fuck-off cannons, 
as to decide to simply watch our every move and not drag us into the unending void. Well, it wasn't entirely uneventful. On the first day of the journey, I was woken by Jupiter for breakfast, and what the funny apes called coffee, a delicious beverage that made electricity course through my body. As we enjoyed this exotic beverage, Jupiter's voice filled my ears. Kelty, I still don't know why you brought that thing with you. He gestured cautiously at Feda. Feda was a Tadari, with her twin wings as long snout and a beautiful colors on her scales. The humans hadn't even questioned her presence. I could only hope their silence was born of fear. That thing has a name. I brought her because she brings me comfort. And frankly, these primates are fairly poorly understood. I'm nervous. But you're not scared they might eat I, uh, her. If they try, I'll firmly stand my ground that they cannot. I'm more worried she might fly off into the Earth's skies, to be honest. As my final words lingered, the hiss of the door to the small mess hall opened, and the same human technician who described the fuck-off cannons to me stepped inside. He was young for his species, with hair that looked like furry sand, and eyes that matched the waves that would wash over it. His name, as I recalled, was John and a second round of red fruits they called apples. He took one of the apples and offered it to Feda, who gleefully dug into it and ripped it apart. He rubbed his hand gently over her scales, much to her delight, as she tore into the fruit. Jupiter looked at the ape in confusion as he continued stroking Feda's colorful scales. This is a beautiful, uh, bird thing you have, Mr. Kalti. What's its name? Um, her name is Feda. You don't plan on eating her, do you? No. Why would I eat your pet? Jupiter broke her veil of silence. His what? Well, I assume she's his pet, right? I mean, she seems to stay around him, and he has a name for her. Now you're saying you've seen this sort of behavior before? Well, yeah. Just about everyone on Earth has or has had a pet before. I have an overly dramatic husky back home named Juniper. Wait, everyone has an animal that they just befriend? Yeah. Doesn't the rest of the galaxy? Human societies are practically built on us. They even do jobs for us. No, nobody does that. Kalti had to fight off the government to smuggle this reptile to the ship. Suddenly, my journey's isolation and my fear for Feda seems much less. If all the humans on Earth could understand my love for this animal, maybe this job would be way more interesting and fun. End of story. 1914 Little bird buddy, Jimmy, Agent 007. Nothing quite wakes you up from a bad dream like a human kicking down your door in his underwear while brandishing a wrench that weighs more than you. I could see his predatory eyes searching the room for a target before finally settling on me once he was sure nothing else was in the room. Are you right? I heard screaming. The intensity in his voice was palpable. I'm okay. I hopped out of bed the nest pouch hanging on the wall, and stretched my wings. I just had bothersome thoughts while asleep. I'm sorry if they woke you. Sometimes you must study humans for a long time to pick up on the subtle shifts in their demeanor. This was not one of those times, as the tense body language ready for action softened into an almost delicate grace. He leaned the door back on its frame before nearly sitting on one of my chairs, remembering the door wasn't the only thing not built for humans and stopped. Don't apologize for your nightmares, my little bird buddy. The deep, soothing voice was almost enough to put me back to sleep. Tell me what's wrong. 
Humans don't usually have nightmares unless something is really bothering us. My son is in the hospital. He needs a transfusion, and I'm the only compatible donor. A treatment we learned from human doctors, as it was explained to me. But the next transport isn't for another week. It was hard to say out loud. The warrior felt almost choking the words. Seeing such concern and alien eyes for a life so disconnected from him was strange. Will he be able to hold on until then? Doctors say it's possible. My voice told him just how bad the odds were. The problem is, uh, the government office said that they can't send an unscheduled transport for a medical emergency if it's not for someone at the outpost. I already tried calling to get them to make an exception. I pointed my beak in the direction of the comms unit. Those stupid pieces of... He almost choked himself with anger before stopping and going to the comms. I didn't see how he would get anywhere with them, but I wasn't going to try and stop him. Humans had a way of doing things different and getting results. This is Manny O'Malley. I need an emergency transport sent to Mining Outpost 457. Send it immediately. His blunt order took the operator by surprise, but they soon recovered. I checked your comms unit code. We are aware of the emergency you're referring to, but the government procedure hasn't changed. We can only dispatch emergency transports to a location of the emergency. The operator jumped back in annoyance. Manny sighed with a heavy breath. Then he took a deep breath. Listen here. Either you send us a transport or you can schedule one for yourself. Because if anything happens to that boy, I am going to hunt you down and pluck you bald. Then deep fry you in 15 different secret spices and feast on your carcass in front of your co-workers until... The line was cut and the operator squawked in fear and hit the button. I never want to know what else would have been said had the conversation continued. I uh, overdid it. Manny grunted in disappointment. It was worth a try. I would have let out a long, sad whistle had Manny not whipped his head around at me to glare into my soul. We're not done yet. Get your bag off the wall. Meet me in the landing pad. He stood up and shoved the door aside to let in the first rays of daylight. You'll get your ride. I wondered what he had planned. Humans were known to be quite adept at building vehicles from scrap. But something that could fly to the city would probably have taken until the regular transport arrived to build. I'd never find out. When I got to the landing pad, I saw Manny dressed in work clothes. He was wearing a tool harness covered in pouches hanging from his chest. On the ground was the back harness for mining equipment, but the mining equipment's gone, leaving only the metal frame. What is going on? I asked, as he pushed bottles into holsters in his rigging. The warning labels in every language, but human one explaining how toxic it was. Getting my emergency drinks ready. Manny took my pocket nest and attached it to the rig. Get in. I did as instructed, and then I hoisted up into his back. I wondered if we were going to jump on a passing transport or something. Take this. He handed me a navigational display. Humans tend to veer off course over long distances. The display was set to the beacon of the main colony. Wait, what? Hold on, little bird buddy. I've got this. Manny shouted as he started to move forwards. The pace kept increasing as I bounced in the nest on his back. And suddenly, the plan dawned on me. He was going to run. Run a distance that you would need a satellite to track. We left the landing area and were off to the mining area. As we got close to the edge of the pit, I was puzzled as to why we weren't diverting to the ramp. Then I became terrified a moment before he leapt over the edge. 
even with the lower gravity. I was sure he couldn't make the jump and was technically correct. He landed on one of the cranes that weren't visible from the outside, and I noticed all the cranes were lined up, connecting us in the far side of the pit. While I held on for dear life and bounded from crane to crane, Manny waved at all of those crane controls as we passed. How did you get everyone awake and into the mines in so little time? I asked once we had finished crossing the other side and were running along the open grasslands. I may have mentioned something about a secret spices, he chuckled to himself. He was right about needing to be corrected as he ran. There was a subtle shift towards this dominant side that I corrected every so often as I bounced in my nest on the back while clutching the device. We didn't stop when he wanted to eat or drink. He just ate the meal bar while running and followed up with a long drawer of one of the bottles he kept. When I mentioned that I would need something, he opened more pouches to give me what I needed. I was eating a bag of freeze-dried blueberries when he spoke up. Ah, the trees, finally! His pace quickened a bit. I couldn't see them, not for a while at any rate, but his course didn't need correction once he had a fixed point to focus on. Of course... It wasn't the trees of the colony city as they finally came into my view. That's the wild jungle they planted years ago. It's overgrown and uncivilized. I realized he wasn't changing direction. We're going through it, aren't we? That could be an Amazon rainforest and it wouldn't stop me. Before or after we regrew it. Nothing in there I need to be worried about. I suspected he might be right given it was only dangerous by my standards, and humans tend to enjoy things even though they consider them hazardous. Generally, my people don't do much more than glide short distances, having traded long-distance flight for intelligence long ago in our evolutionary ladder. I had flown between trees before, though. It was a good exercise and sharpened your reactions. On the other hand, Manny bounded between the trees with a speed I couldn't have been able to match. As the brush thickened, I got concerned. Our vines might be rather strong, even by your standards. Try not to get caught up in any. I halted as I saw him running right into one that was suddenly separated in a flash of metal. You were saying... Nanny brandished a massive flat blade as long as I was and continued to slice through anything that got in our way. Thank the ancient deities of our world, you humans got over your warring phase before first contact. I commented in between continued corrections on our heading. You and me both. We are making way more friends this way. But you better believe we haven't forgotten how to fight if some race comes along looking for a fight. He sheathed the blade as we arrived at the river. I knew the dangers that lurked in the water. They would be from our home world, and half the reason our species evolved flight was to keep away from them. I kept my mind off that thought, hoping they hadn't yet been seeded onto the world like the Kotak swarms, I asked as he lifted my nest and me off his back to hold over his head as he forded the river. Ah, they were nice enough today once you talked to the Hive Queen instead of the drones. He wouldn't believe how sorry they were once they realized non-Hive species were intelligent. That was the last thing he said before his head went under the water. He was still walking along, so I tried not to get worried, but I knew humans couldn't breathe underwater. When he did emerge, he kept talking like nothing happened. We were the only ones who could get through to them because of how humans can coordinate things. They saw a pattern in how our ships and fighters moved. He looked down at himself and made an interested noise. I looked down and saw a number of aquatic predators that I'd feared clung onto the humans' exposed flesh. You know that you are being attacked, right? 
Am I? He countered as he kept walking. I looked again, and while there were red marks and attempts had been made, everything that had been trying to bite him had failed. They fell off as he left the water, and they couldn't survive without letting go. Oh, I remarked. Critters, he rebuked dismissively. I decided I never wanted to go to Earth. I didn't even need to read a book about what kinds of animals lived on it. If I ever did, the nightmares would never stop. I watched as we left behind the most dangerous creatures our world had, writhing on the ground because they couldn't even hurt a human. We pushed through the jungle until I suddenly ended a few dozen meters from a cliff face. It looked like an almost vertical incline. I wondered if he had taken time to check the elevation map before he left. What's that? I asked, distracted from asking if he knew what way was the shortest around. Magnesium carbonate, he stated flatly as he dusted the powder over his hands, as if that was the only explanation I needed. Before I could ask my original question, he moved up to the bare rock and started climbing. I looked up the two dozen meters we would have to climb and balked at the idea that the heavy human could ascend directly even in lower gravity. You think you can climb this? I asked. It's not even totally vertical, let alone an overhang. I'll be fine. His response seemed to be like he found the question amusingly silly. Should I try flapping my wings? I thought he needed my help. Yeah, that would make it a bit more challenging. Go for it. Such insanity shouldn't have surprised me coming from a race that invented flight before remote controls. But it always did. I stayed still as we quickly made our way up and over the cliff's edge, where we could see the setting sun go down over the horizon. I was exhausted. Should we rest for the night? I asked, seeing that Manny was taking a moment to catch his breath. You can go ahead and sleep. He chugged an entire bottle in one go. I'm a hair under the toxic dose of the good stuff. I'll be fine all night. I didn't want to know what he drank. Whatever it was, reading the warning label alone would have probably killed me. He took a navigation device from me and let me crawl into my nest and get what sleep I could. It wasn't easy doing so on the back of the human, but I managed. When I woke, Manny was still running. Poking my head out of the nest, I could see the city in the dawn light. We made it, I exclaimed, so full of excitement. You betcha, little bird buddy. He seemed to pick up his pace as we approached the forest. All our facilities will be in the trees. We need to get up there. But moving around will be difficult since we don't have a vehicle and you don't have wings, I explained as we approached the outskirts. Elevator, right there. It'll get us up there. He ran into the open doors and slammed his fist onto the button. I was grateful the equipment was rated for human use and started moving us up. Manny detached most of his gear except for my nest on his back and left it on the floor. Then he pulled out a small tube and examined it. What is that? I was curious and excited to be so close to our call. It is something that has a warning label written in human, he smiled. It's going to get us over the finish line. No, I can't let you put your life in danger. It frightened me they would risk himself so casually. Relax, his warning says it's only dangerous if I make a habit of it. Or have a heart condition. Besides, we are literally on our way to a hospital. It's a multi-species, right? Yes, but... Then relax, I'll be fine. He slammed the tube into the side of his neck, and his whole body shook before settling down again. He burst out of the door with new energy, and we found ourselves at the city level, but no vehicles were parked in the lot. We could see the direction we needed to go, but with trees, branches, and vines in the way. Well, uh, this is going to be interesting. 
He tensed up like he was getting ready to jump from branch to branch, but they were too far apart, and the colony infrastructure was still being built. Do I need to remind you that humans did not evolve from birds? I asked, wondering if the injection he took impaired his judgment. He turned to look at me in the eyes with either a manic insanity or a childlike glee. No, we evolved from monkeys. I didn't have time to ask what a monkey was as he bolted forward and leapt from the platform. The only thing close to us was a vine hanging from the trees, and I had to conclude monkeys evolved through brute force stupidity. Manny grabbed onto the vine and swung, using our momentum to the next vine and the next. Occasionally we landed on a branch to adjust our course, but only briefly, before leaping onto another vine. The entire time he bellowed a strange primal holler. I didn't even realize that we were here at the hospital until we rode the vine to crash through the front door. We're here. Quick, find out where we are going. Manny brought me to the clerk, who quickly told us where my family was after I explained that we weren't there to attack the place. Manny seemed more comfortable in a structure laid out for most races to get around in and bounded up the stairs faster than the internal elevator could take us, skipping most of them. We got to the floor where my family was and we were soon bursting through the door. There, in the medical nest, was my son and wife comforting him. Their expressions looked a lot like mine probably did when Manny burst through my door. I leapt onto his shoulder before gliding down to be with my family. You! Manny pointed at the doctor, who had been in the room checking on his patient. Transfusion! Now! The doctor got to work without any need to mention a secret spices, and I was soon hooked up to allow my blood to flow to my son. Satisfied that everything that needed to be done had been done, Manny collapsed on a chair that thankfully supported his weight. I heard a human burst in here. Is everything okay? Came a new voice. I noticed another human came in, a doctor according to the card pinned to her coat. Only this one was smaller than Manny, with long red hair and a differently shaped chest. It reminded him of the pictures Manny had in his locker, only with clothing. Manny reacted to the sound of the voice like he had taken another stimulant. Shut up to his feet. Just fine, doctor. Had to give my little bird buddy a ride. Did you take a stimulant? She examined his neck, where the injection mark was unmistakable, before looking at the attempted bite marks and the rest of him. Just a few energy drinks and electrolytes and such, then a dose of um, party favor. Have you fine, though? Manny didn't quite look fine even from my perspective, but the doctor looked interested rather than he concerned. He ran all day and night just to get me here in time to save my son's life, waded through an infested river and fought off the predators that would have killed me, climbed up a vertical cliff face and swung us the rest of the way using the vines. It was hard to muster the energy to convey enthusiasm with my blood being drained, but the doctor's eyes widened at my story. That's amazing. Are you sure you're all right? I could check you in the room next to your friend here. The doctor seemed genuinely impressed. Well, you look like you were on your way home, he gestured to a coat in her arms. I don't want to keep you after a long day of work when I'm just fine. But if you insist, don't be silly, Manny, I interjected, hoping that I read the right signals. I'm sure the doctor can monitor your health at her place. No need for paperwork or medical bills. Both humans turned their eyes to me for a moment before turning to each other. I can certainly keep on top of your condition from the comfort of a human bed. The human said with a subtext I wasn't familiar with, but could take a guess. I always follow doctor's orders, Manny replied with a happy grin. The doctor turned to leave and Manny turned to face me, sticking his arm out with a closed fist except that it was extended thumb. You are the best wingman, my little bird buddy. 
Manny left the room, and my wife finally spoke. What just happened? I think I just secured him a mate. End of story. 1915. Speaker for the Depressed. Written by Grenadier42. Lassim Siskriti was nervous despite his best efforts. He had volunteered to be a speaker for the depressed, for the newly discovered species on the fourth arm of the galaxy. If his argument was well received, the assembly would vote on how many resources were necessary for the uplifting. If his argument was not well received, then it would either be tabled for later discussion, or conversely, a motion for containment would be discussed. It was entirely up to the speaker, and the speaker alone, therefore, to make sure that everything was properly dressed. Siskriti picked up a data pad and looked over his speech. He huffed in amusement, knowing the response to his words was going to cause confusion amongst the other races. The Vasim were not known to be a species of speech-givers who wove words to make others cry. They were a species who valued the ability to put complex ideas into small words. He felt his speech captured this beautifully, and it was the philosophy that had driven him to volunteer in the first place. Closing out his speech, he maneuvered through the mess of data in histories, wars, philosophies, and even the bathing habits before he found the piece that had inspired him. Laconic phrases. He attempted to mouth the unfamiliar word while listening to the translator's best attempt at rendering the proper pronunciation. The philosophy around them spoke to him from across the stars and ages, and he had known in that moment he had to speak for them. Pausing, he glanced at the clock. He was expected in the chambers in two hundred heartbeats. He breathed for a moment, holding the breath while feeding the joy of being, before breathing out and standing. The moment had passed, and the next approached. Gathering his data pad, he strode confidently out of his office, startling the Zithrasi that had come to collect him into a chittering mass. He ignored the poor insect, striding confidently down the glistening halls adored with the portraits of each previous successful speaker. If he succeeded, his would adorn the halls after this, as his words would have uplifted an entire species. If he failed, he would return home in disgrace. He smiled briefly as he thought about the Olympics, when men wished to either win or die to avoid the humiliation. A fascinating species. The hallway he walked down did not curve or veer in any direction, as it was set up solely for the benefit of the speaker. The room he had occupied was just for him as well, to prepare his speech. Once he had finished, they would return to the vacancy until another depressed was disclosed. The hallway would remain lit so the diplomats would come and admire the works of what the Republic considered the greats, but generally it sat well lit but empty. Reaching the end of the hallway, he finally turned and began ascending a small set of stairs that took him to the center of the assembly. He began climbing up the spiraling stairs, giving him ample opportunity to not only observe, but be observed by every sentient species in the galaxy. Every member needed an opportunity to remember the faces of the ones speaking. Finally reaching the top, he turned and looked to the full grandeur of the assembly house at the time of its construction, there had been 48 members, and each had been involved in the design. The house was round with a central podium to show that no one, not even the current speaker, was more or less important. 
No one sat out front. As there was no front, nor was there a back, it merely was and is. Each member had constructed a single segment of the house in their own world style, making the entire building a kaleidoscope mess of different clashing colors and design choices. The final builders had managed to put together into something that didn't completely assault the eyes, but first impressions were always that it was ugly. However, second and third impressions always showed that the beauty of the joint effort began to show through, until each species grew rather fond of the horrid building. Siskritty breathed again, taking in another moment. He held the breath as he placed the datapad on the podium in front of him, before releasing the breath and awaiting the next. He nodded to the announcer and snicked named Liss, who began the formal introductions. Ten full cycles ago, the depressed species was discovered at the fourth arm of the galaxy. Per protocol, a full collection of all their histories, writings, works of art and mannerisms was compiled and given to each of the 99 members of the assembly, Liss said. This council meeting is to discuss whether or not to uplift the species that calls itself humanity. Liss then looked over to Suscriti, who could see the nervousness on the other species' face. One cycle ago, we began accepting applications to be the speaker for the depressed. In a rather, she paused, seemingly struggling to find the true word, Surprising situation, the first applicant was a Vaseem, not the Kalrai or the Plercha. A low murmur broke out across the assembly at that point, as everyone had now received confirmation of their suspicions. The speaker was not announced until this moment in order to prevent bias warming, and the snicked had spoken true. A Vaseem had never even requested to be a speaker. In fact, ten of the last twenty speakers had been Carlai, eighteen if the Plercha were included. Some believe that this rarity was the single reason that they had been chosen. In accordance with the rules, Vaseem Saskriti will have one full station rotation to make their arguments, at which point questions can be posed by the attending members without limit, Bliss said, having recovered from her own surprise. Now hereby present Vaseem Saskriti, Velar censored. Polite applause, grunting, and other signs of approval ripple through the attending members. Mrs. Scritty could hear the nervous tension. He hummed internally, taking in the moment, before politely brushing his fur and stepping up to the podium. He breathed, howled, and then made the first part of his speech. They buried their dead. He stepped back down and sat in a chair that was made of available for speakers in case of a long debate or, in rare cases, outbursts. Liss looked at him, the horror on her face evident and mirrored by the quiet drone starting to grow in this assembly house. Instead of listening to it, he leaned his head back and looked at the vote, a giant conical mechanism that was suspended over the central tower. Displayed across its surface was the vote, the tally of agreements and disagreements that each species would make in relation to a topic. Right now, no votes were being shown, but he was confident that that was going to change. Almost on cue, a light flicked on, showing that Vaseem had just voted to uplift. Suscriti hummed in satisfaction. Even if he failed here today, at least he had been granted the blessing of his people. The laconic phrase had spoken to his delegation in the same way it had to him. And so, even if he failed, he could return home safe in the knowledge that he would not be exiled. The noise of confusion and alarm began to steadily increase, 
growing from a low murmur to a cacophony of shouting, swearing, chittering, banging, and expletives that were impolite for the gravity of the situation. Siskritty let it continue. He was in no hurry to correct anyone, as he felt the phrase spoke for itself. This was all part of his speech. He had wanted to debate the rage so that when he finally explained it, the simplicity of the argument would speak for itself. After nearly two-thirds of a rotation had passed, Siskritty finally stood and retook the podium, much to the relief of Liss and to the rest of the assembly. The Vassim were definitely known for being concise, but even this had been almost insulting to the entire process. However, he was back with an explanation, and as he waited patiently, standing still and keeping his fur flattened in a sign of bored resignation, the noise in the house slowly decreased until it died altogether. Do you not understand? Siskritty asked condescendingly as he swept the assembly with his gaze. They bury their dead. He looked around again, taking moments to look at each of the ninety-nine members and seeing quiet discussions among several of them. What purpose does land serve if you put an ancestor into it? He asked, looking back at his datapad. None. You cannot farm your ancestors. You cannot harvest their spiritual energy. Nor can you gain some sort of tactile benefit from placing them into productive soil. In fact, placing remains into the soil can poison it. So what benefit does it provide to these humans to bury their dead? At this point, he pulled out a small hollow device and activated it causing a series of diagrams to appear above his head. He pointed up at the diagrams. I compiled the death rituals of every species assembled here today, and if you look at one on the surface, it appears incredibly varied. Cremation, weapon forging, ritualistic consumption, fruit planting, etc. He looked back at the assembly. But what was the point of all of this? He waited, watching the realization slowly slink in across a few species, and confusion settled in to even more. He sighed, a sound not unlike a growl, before closing his eyes and placing his hands on the podium. He breathed in the moment, the quiet murmur of slow realization, before breathing back out. They believe in something greater than themselves, just like these humans do. They believe that there is something more, something outside their own understanding and capabilities, and they want in, he said. His eyes still closed while he breathed. Every species here has funeral traditions, because we too once believed in something greater than ourselves, and we wished to tap into that, to be a part of it, and to hope that existence was not meaningless. Opening his eyes, he looked back out across the assembly, casting his gaze across the architecture of the 48 founders that adorned the walls and ceiling. Is that not what this place is about? Is it not a place dedicated to the ideal? then there is something greater than we should all be striving towards. Is this not a monument to the idea that it takes more than art or science or war or philosophy to be considered one of us? He reached over and turned off the hollow device and deactivated the datapad as well. He collected them into his hands before glancing over at the clock, showing that the station had almost finished its rotation. He hummed, and breathed in the moment of silence that now hung across the assembly as each species considered his words. Breathing out, he added finally, Is it our place to deny them? After all, there is something more. He picked up his datapad and hollow device, 
turned around and sat back down in the chair that had been provided. He placed them on his lap and continued to breathe, taking in the moment as the assembly descended into chaos once again. Four rotations later, after a long series of questions and answers, the assembly overwhelmingly agreed to uplift the new race of humanity and accept them into their fold. It was agreed that the Vaseem would be the vanguards in the uplifting effort and that the phrase, there is something more, would become an official motto for the project. Humanity had been found worthy. End of story. 1916 this Strange Encounter, written by I.S. Zox. Tamalma was hunting. He groped his spear between his six-fingered hands and used his six legs to move through the forest. Thanks to his many eyes, he had a superb vision of the surrounding forest. The trees already began to losing their leaves, and he would need the meat of a disvolver or something similarly sized to get his family over the winter. Luckily, the crunching orange leaves of the trees created the perfect environment for tracking and hunting large animals. He raised his carapace that closed his torso and waited for a sound to come to his ear. He waited silently for minutes, nothing that indicated any animals nearby. This close to the village, he would have been lucky to catch anything. Guess he would have to search over the hills, between them and the large salty lake. After he had moved over the hills, Timalm swept the area for the Zvelva or a Telblek. He was about to give up when he stumbled through the forest and saw an unknown creature standing on a clearing right next to a tree. The unknown was like anything Timalm had ever seen before, with only four limbs. It used two of them to stand upright and apparently the other two to eat, seeing as it removed a few of the red leaves from the tree it stood next to. It had no carapace. Its entire body was covered beneath black, flexible skin. He couldn't see any eyes or ears, so it was likely that it hadn't spotted him yet. Timon was fascinated by the creature and would have observed it for hours, but the fading sun reminded him that he didn't have much time. Could he hunt the creature? Surely he could. It might be taller than him, but it didn't have any defenses like a carapace. He stepped onto the clearing, careful not to make too much noise. Apparently, he failed, as the creature turned around and looked towards him. Timon decided to rush his prey. He ran towards the strange thing, when some kind of shiny rock appeared in the upper appendages of it. It didn't look sharp, so Timon ran further and almost reached the creature, when the sound of thunder reached his ears. Pain erupted in his body. He looked down to see a hole in his clothes, whatever this was. He would survive it. He closed in on the target. Then another thunderous sound reached his ears. The pain in the side of his body massively increased. And he looked down again. Cracks appeared in his carapace. Tamal knew that a broken carapace meant a slow and certain death. He tried a last-ditch effort to take down the creature. But it was fruitless. He crashed down and the impact did the rest to his carapace. He looked upwards to the creature standing above him. It had attacked him from a distance with lightning. He could only be a god or another kind of supernatural creature. And he had foolishly attacked it and was now dying from it. These were his last thoughts before he fell unconscious. Timalma woke. He laid on a bed, one much softer than his one and home. Where was he? How did he get here? What had happened? 
Then he remembered his encounter on the clearing, the strange supernatural creature and his cracked carapace. He had fallen unconscious from pain, which meant that he should be dead. Was this the afterlife the elders had spoken of? So why did he still feel pain? His arms and legs were held together by a long, thick string, and he was completely unable to move them. He looked down to the crack in his carapace. It was no longer there. Only a small bump that ran along the entire former position of the crack was visible. The crack itself was sealed. How was this possible? Fully broken carapaces could not heal. He observed his surroundings. He was in a room with walls and that had a color of snow. The material was made neither of rock nor from wood, or any material he knew. Maybe it was similar to the weapon the creature had wielded against him, but he wasn't certain. The hole suddenly opened in the wall and another two-legged creature entered with what had to be a snow-colored clothing. Its looks were strange. It had a completely different head to that from the ground. Also, its fingers looked different. They looked at him, then looked at the flat plate made from the war material. It shakes its head around, then left the room again. He had to either be in the afterlife or the domain of the gods, he concluded. If the god he had met could injure him with lightning, then there should be one capable of healing his carapace. But why? He had attacked a god. Shouldn't it be an offense punished by death? Had they perhaps only healed him to make sure that he would survive to meet their judgment? He shivered. He had to get out of here, even if it meant that they would only kill him later. Timon concentrated. Now he could see the fine lines that indicated the passage in the wall. Then the passage opened again, and the god of storms, the one that had attacked him, appeared in the room. It looked at him with its eyeless face, then grabbed him at his legs and threw him over his shoulder. Timon panicked. He was not prepared to die so young. He could only look backwards as they moved further from the bed and through the passage. They marched through the gigantic house, with magic lightings and openings that didn't let anything through them. There was nothing to see when he looked outside. Tamam saw a few additional gods, all of them looking strangely different from another. Then the one carrying him moved through another passage, into a small room with two seats on either side. They flung him into the seat on the right, secured his body in position with flat, white strings, and took place on the left. Then a large clunking sound ran through the room, and Timon was suddenly weightless. He used the time to look out the opening right next to him, and saw a large half-moon-shaped ring of colors of water, leaves, and wood. It slowly became bigger as he kept looking at it. Was this how the gods saw the ground? Then he turned left and saw the one touching the wall of lights and differently colored protrusions. Suddenly, he was pressed into his seat. The sudden weight left him without breath, and he struggled to regain air. This continued for about ten seconds before he was weightless again. The next minutes were silent. Tamalm couldn't talk to his neighbor and wasn't even sure they would respond. So the two just sat there, silently. Tamal began feeling the little bit of weight and was slowly pressed into his seat again. He looked outside to see flames raging around the room he was in. He screamed. Instantaneously, a hand rushed over to his mouth and pressed it shut. Tamal tried to remove the hand, but his arms were still bound. He was forced to watch as the flames became stronger and stronger and he was pressed more and more into his seat. He was rattled around. The force pressing became stronger and stronger, and Tamalm wondered whether the flames, the rattling, or the force would kill him first. 
After what felt like an eternity, the flame subsided and he began feeding lighter. The hand was removed from his mouth and he could fully breathe again. He looked left and saw the creature stare focus on the wall of light. Then the same force pressed him back into his seat and he was rattled around again. He caught his breath rather quickly, then looked back left. Why, when this so tense? Then he heard a loud rumbling from below. It almost sounded like thunder, but continuous and louder. It became louder and louder, then it suddenly cut and everything became still. He lay on his seat and was back to normal weight. His seat neighbor also looked much more relaxed than before and turned around to look at him. They moved from their seat to the middle, pulled him from his seat, then pressed on a light at the board. The floor below them sank downwards and the walls were replaced by strange round objects of many different sizes. Then the way downwards stopped and they stepped from the piece of floor now hanging just above the ground, which looked as if it had burned recently. They put me back on their shoulders, ignored the hot surface and moved forwards. After a short time, he saw a massive object with a snow-colored upper side and the ash-colored lower side. He couldn't estimate how high it really was, but it surely was high. Behind it was a large surface of water, which was typical coloring and small waves. After being carried even further, he recognized where he was. The large object had stood on the shore on the large salty lake over the hills and he was currently on his way towards the hills. Did the god of thunder really bother to carry him personally back to his village? Then his carrier suddenly stopped and put him onto the ground. He immediately recognized the clearing they were in. With a strong pull, he was flipped upside down and his weakly protected underside and joints were exposed. They pulled out a knife and made a shiny material which looked really sharp then moved it towards Timon's underside. Please, don't hurt me. Please, don't hurt me. But Timon's thoughts, before he closed his eyes, had expected a cut at any time. The pressure holding his limbs together disappeared. He opened his eyes and saw that they had cut the string holding his limbs together and had moved a little bit backwards. He turned himself upside down and stood up. He pointed his right hand at himself, then told the god his name. Timon! They pointed one of their fingers on them and said, Human, to him. They picked up his hunting spear and flung them through the air into his hands. Then they made a gesture with their hand. He interpreted it as to come closer. They continued, then turned around and stepped into the forest. Tamalm followed. They were a little foot faster than him, but occasionally waited for him to catch up. After a medium amount of time, they stopped and switched to moving very carefully. Tamam closed up with careful steps himself until he was directly next to them. They pointed into the forest. Tamam followed their finger and saw a disvalva in the distance. Before he could sneak close to it, they raised their weapon at the animal. A large booming sound, which almost pierced the ears of Tamam, ran through the forest and the disvalva dropped dead on the ground. Tamam moved to the corpse and began picking it up. He held it in his hands and offered it to the god. They declined and helped him put the disvalva on his back. He imitated the gesture that had used to tell him to follow and began marching back to his village. After a while, he turned around to see if they had kept pace with him, but he saw no one. He moved back to where they had hunted the disvalva, but he found only footsteps into the other direction. He followed them and ran back to the shore. The large object was still on the sand, but the floor panel that hung on the lower side was gone. The flames lit up on the lower side and the loud rumblings was back. 
almost as if it was weightless. The object began moving up into the sky and became smaller and smaller. Tamam looked after it until it became too small to see. Then he turned towards the hills and walked. With his hunting prize at his back, he had a story to tell. Sarah took off her helmet. After the atmosphere had stabilized back to earth levels, she untied her braid and flung her red hairs all over her shoulder. She unmuted the radio and hailed the UNS Pioneer 10. UNS Pioneer 10, this is Star Fox 1, do you copy? Star Fox 1, this is the UNS Pioneer 10. You are loud and clear over. Pioneer 10, do you have me on radar? We have you on radar, calculating necessary maneuvers now. She thought back to her encounter with the strange semi-arachnid down on the planet and had a chuckle. What's so funny, Sarah? Her radio cackled. You know, Zhang, this is the first encounter between humans and another sentient species, and the first thing that happens is a shooting. What a terrible way to encounter one another, she laughed. Well, you shot him. You could have sat back. The surveyor suits are resilient enough to stave off pistol fire. Well, exploration protocol states that the life of the surveyor goes first, and that shooting is a valid way of self-defense. Also, he gave us valuable probes and some insights into formation of conscience. That should be at least worth the efforts of the Giorgio put into bringing him back up. Yeah, you definitely owe Giorgio one of your cake rations. I've only got two of them left. I have to save them already. You know, that we still have two months left on our mission. Giorgio, you heard that. One cake ration from Sarah for you. Zang, you bast... She sighed. All right, one cake ration for Giorgio. She paused again. There's the navigation plan finished. Lee is going through it, but she should finish it in a few seconds. Yep. It's ready. Sending it to you now. Sarah waited a few seconds before her control display blinked, and she was greeted by an orbital map with trajectories and maneuvers necessary to redock the Pioneer. Let's see. Four hours until rendezvous, so about five hours until I'm back. Would you please fill out the report with all the things that happened on the Pioneer, darling? All right, love. I'm going to do it. But only if you're going to have some fun tonight. Thanks, darling. I wanted some yesterday already. Sarah... You know that all of this goes into protocol, and this time around someone is actually going to read it. Of course I know. That's why I said it. And everyone's going to know that you cheated me out of a cake ration. See you in five hours. See you in five hours. Sarah closed the radio channel and focused on the maneuver list in front of her. Next maneuver in 40 minutes. That was ample time to start filling out the documents. Planet Spectre 1746392B Inhabitable? Yes. Suitable for colonization? No. Reason for classification? Inhabited by primitive sentient species. Further indirect study needed. See attached first contact report. Signature, Sarah Witt. She looked at the maneuver list again. Fifteen minutes until next maneuver. Computer, open first contact report. Opening first contact report. First contact report, P10-1. System of first contact. Species nickname. Species homeworld. Species biological data, technological level, course of first contact, future diplomatic outlook, additional information. She carefully filled out the data, describing her encounter with the alien in great detail, until an alarm ripped her from her recollection. The first maneuver was due in 30 seconds. Sarah watched the automatic flight control system execute the maneuver, then looked back at her report. She finished the protocol, then relaxed back in her seat. She still had about two hours until the rendezvous. One week later, Sarah sat in a mess hall of the Pioneer 10 together with the entirety of the ship's crew. New orders had finally arrived from Earth. 
Did we get uh, concrete orders? She asked. No, just uh, proceed at your own caution order, Captain Clues answered. So to all of you, what do we do? I would definitely like to survey the planet more, Zhang said. But we're not supposed to interfere in the affairs of primitive civilizations. Our previous actions might have already caused some trouble already. Sarah, what do you mean? Well, I love fieldwork, but Zhang is right. We could cause massive trouble if we continue with ground missions. The guy we kidnapped probably already thinks that he's met a god. If more people report things like this, we will create a mass religion about us. So our consensus is that we should stop ground missions. I would then suggest that we deploy our sentinel satellite and keep watch. This is going to give us orbital pictures and radio data once they advance technology. That's probably our best option, Sarah replied. Let's do it. Zhang, you agree? Zhang nodded. Lee, Pierre, Giorgio, Peter, you agree? All except Lee nodded. Lee, what do you mean? I want to add that we should probably install an asteroid defense system in the system. We don't want to return to some time to see them all dead like the dinosaurs. We don't have a portable asteroid defense around, so we would have to ask back on Earth. We will keep it to the Sentinel for now. Anyone else disagreeing? Everyone shakes their head. Sarah, Peter, you go outside and move the Sentinel from outside Cargo Bay to the Star Fox Cargo Bay. Sarah, you take the Star Fox into the polar orbit and release the satellite. After you return, we'll survey the other planets in the system and then head back home. Why do I have to do this? You know that the whole procedure takes three days, Sarah complained. Peter has much less deployment time than me around here. That's an order, Sarah. Besides, you're the one who handles loneliness the best, and you know that we installed a copy of the video game library for you. Rock, paper, scissors, Sarah, Peter told her. Whoever loses has to deploy the satellite. Rock, paper, scissors, they yelled. Sarah pulled her hands into a fist, only to look at Peter's flat hand. Ah, all right, I'll do it. Told you so, Clus remarked mockingly. Sarah was back in the small orbital shuttles of the Pioneer 10. She looked at the console of Star Fox 2, then sighed. The orbital maneuver that would increase her inclination by 90 degrees was almost complete. She put the helmet on the NBCS suit on, made a pressure test, then she regulated the atmosphere of the cabin to zero. After the maneuver finished, she left the Star Fox through the side hatch and opened the external cargo bay. She took a large satellite from the cargo bay, connected it to a cable and flanged it away. Then she used her EMU to follow it until she was stopped by a cable. She extended the solar panels, deployed all along the antenna, checked the FTL communication system and extended the radar shield. Sarah activated the automatic orbital maneuvering system, releasing the satellite from the cable and returning to Star Fox 2. Back in the cockpit, she took one last look at Sentinel's satellite before activating the RCS and maneuvering away. The Sentinel would maneuver itself into its final orbit. Time to return to the Pioneer 10. Tamalm looked into the night sky. He was thinking about what had happened to him several days ago. When he returned home, he had been shocked to find that he had been away for three days. Most had initially called him a liar when he had talked about his encounter, but he had wisely taken the godly string with him. After realizing that it was uncuttable, and after seeing the bump on his carapace, all of them changed their mind. Now, he was pondering, when would human god of thunder visit him again? He didn't know. He only knew that the gods lived in the sky, somewhere up there, amongst the stars. He looked there every night for a sign, even a small one. Come on, give me a sign, he thought to himself.
He stood there for a while until a small star ran over the night sky and disappeared below the horizon. Something clicked in his head. He understood now. They wouldn't come back. Not for him. But somewhere up in the sky, human, the merciful and generous god of thunder, had a watchful eye on him. End of story. 1917. Story number one. Once more with feeding. Written by Discordant Sky. The shrill call of the base's alarm woke me with a start. My flailing spilling me from my meager cot. I screamed, not in rage, but in terror. Not caring for the looks of my comrades. No, 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 I babbled to myself. I was dimly aware of the mutterings of my fellows, most dismissing my ramblings as shell shock from the last engagement with the humans. I untangled myself from my thin blanket and jumped to my feet. I took the barest moment to decide what to do before bolting it for the door to the barracks, shoving my commanding officer out of the way. I felt the muffled cramp as a point defense gun opened up. No, 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 please, no! My hand touched the door and... The shrill call of the base's alarm awoke me with a start, my flailing spilling me from my meek cot. Words were lost on me. The only thing to escape me was a wail of agony. This is a nightmare, I thought. I've died and gone to the underworld. From my spot on the floor, tangled in my blanket, I felt the cannon fire and... The shrill call of the base's alarm woke me with a start, my flailing spilling me from my meek cot. I was silent. Ignoring the concerned calls of my comrades. I've gone mad, I sobbed. Make it stop, please. A muffled cramp sent a tremor through the base as a point defense gun opened up. Madness seized my broken mind. I grabbed my sidearm, put the barrel to my mouth, and... The shrill call of the base's alarm woke me with a start. My flailing spilling me from my meager cot. I laid there, sobbing and wailing uncontrollably until the base's point defense guns opened fire and... A hand on my shoulder softly shook me awake. Hey, Moloch, a familiar voice said. It's your rotation. I blinked a few times, my flayed mind not understanding what was happening. I simply sat up a little in the cot and stared at my comrade. It didn't happen, I said to him and began to cry. What are you talking about? he asked. A puzzled look at his face. Come on, it's your watch rotation, man. I want to get some. The alarm, I shouted. The point defense guns, they... A long burst of small arms fire made everyone in the barracks jump, most driving towards weapons. Contact! 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 A muffled voice screamed somewhere outside. East side! A chill ran through my soul as I knew what was about to happen. Come on, my comrades began. We've got to... A hand on my shoulder softly shook me awake. Hey, Malik, a familiar voice said. It's your rotation. He was different, I said, sitting up. It was different that time. What? My comrade said, shaking his head before asking. Weird dream. I leapt from the cot, shoving him out of the way. What the feck? He yelled from the floor. I sprinted towards the base's alarm switch on the wall next to the door and slammed my fists onto the large red button and screamed into the transmitter. Hostile contacts! I screamed like a madman. A rough hand grabbed my shoulder and tried to pull me away from the transmitter. A quick glance told me that it was my CEO. A look of rage on his face. Stand down! He said. I put my shoulder into his face and screamed into the transmitter again. East side! East side! I said. Hostiles! 
I shoved my way off the barracks and looked to the east, even as four of my comrades shoved me to the ground. I saw them then, just as the floodlight snapped on. Humans. Five of them. All standing by the chain-link fence, one holding a large pair of bolt cutters, who looked to be halfway done cutting a large hole in the fence. The sudden flare of light had scrambled their adaptive camouflage, and it had yet to change from the smoky black of their night camouflage. I knew the uniforms they wore. Special Ops troops. Save one, who was bedecked in armor of the likes of which I'd never seen. Taller than the other four by a head, and whose helm was featureless, angled in shape, looking right at me. I screamed and pointed, my comrades following my finger and raising weapons. Four of the humans, the normally armored ones, dived for cover. The fifth simply stood there and bore his gaze into me. Open fire! Someone called from behind. In the same instant, the strangely armored human seemed to shimmer, his outline blurring, and an inky blackness seemed to seep from his armor. Just looking at it made me feel as though the universe was coming apart around the strange human. The roar of dozens of small arms filled my ears and... A hand on my shoulder sharply shook me awake. Hey, Malik, a familiar voice said. It's your rotation. 305. The number updated in my HUD as I said a curse that my armor didn't vocalize. All right, everyone, form up. New update from command, I said. How do you update a snatch and grab up? Jake grumbled. Stow the belly aching, I said glowering down at the man from behind my helmet. New objective. We've got new intel that there's an HVT in that base, and command wants him alive in addition to those star maps that they've got stored there. I ordered as I sent a picture of one of the aliens to each of my squad mates. Remember, that alarm goes off, they'll delete the data. In and out, like we were never there. What's so special about this one, Chief? Chris asked. I leaned out and around the tree and looked at the base kilometer away. I'd taken this many tries just to get this close without tripping any alarms. Now this new problem. He remembers, I said absently. That's new. The whole squad looked at me like I'd grown two heads. He remembers what? Jake asked. What are you talking about, sir? Crap, I groaned internally. Sir, he asked again, placing a hand on my arm. He remembers what? I activated the armor and the feel of familiar tug on my mind and the chill ran along every nerve in my body. 306. All right, everyone, form up. New update from command, I said. How do you update a snatch and grab up? Jake grumbled. Stow it, I said, glowering down at the man from behind my helmet. New objective. We've got new intel that there's an HVT in that base, and command wants him alive in addition to those star maps that they've got stored here. I ordered as I sent a picture of one of the aliens to each of my squad mates. Remember the alarms go off, they'll delete the data. In and out like we were never there. What's so special about this one, Chief? Chris asked. That's above your pay grade, I said. Let's go. Approach from the west side and keep your eyes peeled for the HVT. I thought the brief said come in from the east, Cody said. Change of plans, I said, shouldering my rifle. Keeps him guessing. Gonna be hard getting one of them out unnoticed, Jake said, forming up behind me. We'll figure it out, I said. We've never failed yet, have we? A chorus of approval all around. Once more, with feeling, I think to myself with a sigh. End of story. Story number two. Emotional, written by underscore sky underscore underscore. Sir, shouted the young cyber archaeology student, his tentacles twitching in shock. What is it? His mentor rushed closer. What did you find? Well, the, 
This, uh, I think it's a video. A fragment of a video record, at least. The mentor exhaled with a heavy sigh. Human videos are perfectly encrypted. You'll never get any. Yet, the mentor was interrupted by a student. But this one is only partially encrypted. Huh? What? Yes, sir. Look at it. It even has ID data specified. The student's tentacles were now positively shaky with the weight of the emotions. It says, uh, YouTube, Potential History, published on August 10, 20XX. Human parts of audio files are missing too, but there is still a big stretch of functional audio. By the ancients, shouted the mentor, historical data from human internet. We barely pulled anything before. Indeed, sir, I accidentally stumbled upon it. We maybe even derived the location from their home planet. Well, finding their home planet is a bit of a stretch, but... What is on the video? I do not know, sir. I, I have not seen it yet. The mentor's eyes widened. By the mercy, play it. This must be the greatest archaeological finding to date. We must figure out what happened to the humans. It is crucial that our species doesn't make the same mistakes. Yes, sir. Thus the audio record started playing. First a dozen seconds were nothing but static snow that was part of the obviously encrypted. However, in what seemed to be the 20th second, the picture of the color emerged. Then, out of nowhere, a strange avian creature appeared on the screen in a black and white color, accompanied by the sound of what seemed like the testimony of a human soldier. The human voice. Methought this was going to be a simple job, in and out of... Of course, we had no idea what was waiting for us. While the avian-looking creature was skillfully moving around as if looking for prey. Then a change in the screen, followed by the sound of a loud whistle, gunfire, and the sight of two avian creatures charging forward, likely because they have located their target. Video turned in slow motion. Voices of humans screaming and yelling echoed from the speakers, quickly mixing with the incoming sounds of the machine gun fire. What the hell is this? The mentor's tentacles stiffed with Tara. I, I guess uh, humans fought this against these uh, avians. The video recording blinked into black just for a second. The scenery changed, aging, from a few avian creatures to a dozen at first, followed by the sight of the entire column of avians marching down the human-looking road. The same human voice from before spoke. There were thousands staring at us down. So many targets you could hardly pick on in the heat of the moment. The scene changed again to only two avians charging down the human residential compartment. The sound of the gunfire echoed, and one of the avians fell. I still sometimes see the flashes of the bloody feathers in my dreams. The voice of obviously shocked soldier continued. It seemed to reference some kind of war. Nothing unusual, really. A lot of data indicated that humans fought many of those, so it was only to be expected. Yet still, very little was known about the nature of human warfare per se. The recording went on for another three minutes with the occasional static or black screen. Not everything was clear, but it was obvious beyond the doubt that this recording was talking about a long-ago fought war between two species. At one time, a map with the simplistic deployment of tactical troops' movements indicated there was significant fighting happening on one of the minor landmasses. Enemies presumably painted red, friendly blue. The mentor assumed the avians were invaders and that they had tried to set up a planet landing base there, followed by a colorized picture of the avian leader and even some grotesque scenes where the avians were pillaging and taking food from human civilians. By the ancients, this must be it, screamed the student, 
These aliens are probably committed a genocide on the humans. That is why there is so little of trace left of them. And it perfectly explains why they tried so hard to encrypt any information they had, just in case, replied the mentor. With shaking tentacles and broken voice, the student raised the question. What about the aliens? I think, the mentor swallowed a lump. We need to inform the army about what we found and prepare for the worst. The student blindly stared at the screen. We are not alone, and neither were humans. These tentacles again, trembling in fear. What if they come for us? I do not know. I uh, do not know, answered the mentor. But knowing what happened to humans, we might at least stand a chance. What in fact the student and the mentor failed to understand was the true nature of the fragments of the YouTube video they found. End of an emu story. 1918. A broken machine, written by Sure I'm Not a Robot. Humanity had imagined many enemies, but one of the earliest fears was the tools in their hands turning on them. From axe cults in the Mesolithic to ghosts hiding in the newfangled gaslighting, the electricity and its invisible, mysterious and lethal power. Nothing compared to when a man mixed everything together and created electronics and a whole new type of threat was foreseen and new fears arose. They never came to pass. It turns out that people are better at bonding with their fridges and their own kind half the time. By the time they could have become an independent threat, they were us and we were them. We gave them bad jokes and awkward relationships, and they gave us immortality, and everyone seemed happy with the arrangement. We just made humanity bigger. We had new choices, augmented by our finest work to live out in the galaxy that was slowly unfolding in front of us. New nations, new peoples, and almost no reason to fight. But when had we ever needed a reason? It was our planet. We built it. We have the plans for every square meter of it. And I'll be damned if a bunch of fecking icicles are going to take two bloody continents. Not even one. Not even a bloody embassy, but full independent settlements on two out of the five. And what do we get? Nothing. I'm useless ice walls that even they can't be asked to live on. I vote no, and I'll go further than that. I'll dismiss any of you idiots to vote for it. The room was filled with dappled light. The air filled with a gentle breeze. The rage rang heavily against the carefully contrived peace. The people listening were more than a little shocked and intimidated. The speaker had been the leader of the whole settlement. His work on merging Terran DNA into their own wondrous new forms carried a lot of weight, but one still sought to find her voice. Speaker, this is a negotiation. They are offering us much that they value, even if you don't. It is in good faith. Her voice faded as a growl of opposition grew, and it took her a moment to steady it. Speaker, Council, they ask for lands that we will not be able to terraform for generations, if ever. Your plan is not carved in stone, not ordained by the gods. It is just a plan. The people, she emphasized the word, that made this offer are simply looking for the same opportunities that we are. Those ice balls are the work of our finest artists, not for habitation, but veneration. They honor us with our offer, and I doubt that many of their people will be content with such a bargain. To the surprise of none, the row continued along into the night, even as their new sun disappeared below the horizon. The Terran quorum shook, whisked, 
was sitting in a low planetary orbit. Its two inhabitants were listening to the slow drone of politicians making a mess of things, both sure that they would end up trying to fix it. They were close to the Terran baseline except for the build tech. Medical and at-boss stuff that came with the job. Except that one of them didn't seem to have it all activated. The man looked elderly, a thing almost unheard of now and completely unnecessary. What are the twigs arguing about anyway? The icicles will pay for those dead continents ten times over, just to have a space to grow. That fell into dead air. After a pause came the reply. Envoy Tolan, I will remind you for the last time to not use slurs. The Arboreals and the Chionet are their preferred terms, and a single use of those insults will destroy our credibility. Please remember they are human and have the same rights and abilities that we do. The younger-looking man nodded at the comms. For instance, listening to things that they are not supposed to hear. Am I clear? Tolan snorted. Take your head out of your ass, Silver. What are they going to do? Silver, Inkman, had already lost his sense of humor with his fellow envoy. Figured they had pried him out of some office and inflicted him on the greater human space out of spite. He just wasn't sure who they were trying to piss off, him or Tolan. Apparently both. He gave his colleague a dead look and said, They will read my report when I ask for your removal as a threat to our mission, and you will be back fecking about with treeware on Mars Orbital. Again, am I clear? Tolan sneered. Who are you to threaten me? I could report you just as quickly. I should have known you'd be a fan of those bloody weirdos. Decked up until God himself can't find a human soul. Why all the silver, huh? Just wanted to be better than the rest of us. Silver smiled to himself. That he was one of the God-botherers explained why he'd been packed off to the wilderness. Also, aging in case his terrifying little God wouldn't recognize him when he died. The common clay of Earth, you know, a moron. Well, I inherited a silver tea set from my grandmother, but I don't drink tea, so I decided to plate my augments instead. It seemed to cheer them up. Tolan looked confused. That's bullshit, isn't it? What? Silver turned to the console and burst code into the system. Envoy mission specialist inkment override. Envoy Tolan dismissed for cause slash audio attached. Confirm. The report hit Earth quickly and was sped through the system until it arrived at the Quorum Diplomatic Director's office. He listened to the audio and summoned the project manager for a new settlement. When she arrived, he had nothing and simply replayed the long list of sneering insults. There was an awkward pause and then he snapped, How did this uh, relic get anywhere near this mission? She seemed to squirm before coming to some conclusion. Sir... Those relics still have political power. I am constantly under pressure to include them in our projects. They feel they are missing out on all the new worlds. Tolan has been dead weight in every job he ever held. I thought we could afford to carry him on this one and buy some room for the next. How can he feck up a simple treaty like this? He stopped. Certain things were unwise to say to a director. The director snorted. Of course they are missing out. They won't take any of the augments that they would need to live in the new worlds. They can't sit around Sol and bitch about it because it changes nothing. 
Do they want to pay for a terraform? Nothing stops them. That's what everyone else does. Oh wait, I forgot they're afraid their guard won't get their forwarding address, he growled. Confirm the dismissal. It's a one-man job now. Send Toland somewhere miserable. He waved her away. Go, and next time warn me than when you need to send dead weight out there. I have better methods. Good try, though. The project manager pulled the door closed behind her and resisted the urge to lean against it. She walked quietly to her office, another relic that Hay had hauled onto for some reason, and made a call. Inkmund, Forest Planet 8A, now. As she grabbed a coffee and waited. Tolan got the termination notice while he was bitching about being stuck on here with a bunch of perverts. Silver grinned when the tirade suddenly ended and the ship flashed him a new code for the embassy. Looks like he was going solo. He cut all of Tolan's privileges and purged his personal data. A quick skim revealed the hell of a lot of trash that he didn't want to open. Trust the idiot to not know how to clear his history. He set course for the nearby refueling dump. He knew it was mean. He could have taken him right back to Earth, but, as the saying goes, feck him. It took an hour to get there and five minutes for the ship to chuck his ass out of the platform. It probably had a coffee machine, maybe even a food replicator. None of those pervert humans, though. Then the call came through. He picked up. Hi, boss. How's Earth doing? Worse than you. Now I have to place that idiot somewhere else. Couldn't you have kept him in his room for another week? Silver asked. Boss, if you'd seen the stuff that guy had been watching in there, you wouldn't want to go near it. I've already got a level 6 decon running. Just find him somewhere without all of us perverts and weirdos under a heavy rock. There was a pause. Do you have copies of those files? Because I need to push back on those idiots who made me carry his ass. Silver silently forwarded the perch files. I don't recommend you watch them without serious supervision. I'm guessing about half of it is illegal deepfakes. At least, I hope it's deepfake. I was waiting for a call before I burned it off the ship for good. Who could hear the swearing as she read the file names? And we're the weirdos. All right, I'm giving you the wisp. Don't break her. When do you expect to land Tolan? I'll have security waiting. Silver shrugged. He's sitting on a refueling dump until someone collects him. I already threw him off the ship. He could hear the wariness enter her voice. Fine. I don't really blame you. I'll send a truck to go get him. Take him somewhere uncomfortable. From you, all I want is an update and a proper bloody name for that planet. Go settle them down and promise them whatever you need to. I don't want ghetto planets on my watch. Two variants on an absolute minimum, and I don't care who paid for it. Get that done. I'll call you when I've picked up the trash and, uh... Don't feck up solo, Silver, or I'll post you out for tolling with life. Sure, boss. I would quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and Patreons. Casper Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, Lord Azrakal, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Dragzoon WRE, Holly's Sister, Arcadian. Thank you very much.